This is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, and on this episode of Raw, riding into your golden years, adventure motorcycle hacks, and thoughts on boring motorcycles, all that and more coming up. But before that, I want to give a shout out to people that helped the show incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. Here it goes. Eric Lee, Kieran Hanna, Paul Sirabassi. Eric, Kieran, Paul, thank you very much. We really appreciate your support and you've really helped things out for us this month. Remember, support of $50 or more for Adventure Rider Radio gets your name here on this show, on our Raw show, but we would love your monthly support on our patron account. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. And this episode of Raw is supported by freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations. Now, here we go for June 2019, season four. From the Canoe West Media Studio, deep in the wilderness of Ontario, Canada, surrounded by mosquitoes, black flies, and noceums, as well as a bunch of beautiful lakes and trees, it's June 2019, and welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions of motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. And this episode is brought to you in part by freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations, much like I hope we do here on Raw freshtracks.co.uk. Thank you very much, Fresh Tracks, for being there for us. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my regular Overland co-host, and I'm going to start... Well, actually, I'm not really... I'm not, I'm not joined by everybody. We are missing Graham Field. He is sort of... Well, he's missing. We don't even know where he is. We don't know what he's doing. All we know is he is not here with us. So I'm going to start with... Sam Manicom, because Sam is, I think, the only one that is bright-eyed and bushy-tailed other than myself. Hey, everybody. Too right I am. I tell you what, it's just gone nine o'clock in the evening here in the UK, and yes, I'm back home again. Um, just just finished um, almost two months of the road, and now it's the big-time catch-up. You know, a friend said to me a couple of days back, how do you deal with the potential downer of getting home from a trip? And I thought about it for a millisecond and said, start planning for the next one and i tell you what was making it even better to be home is that um i had my birthday a little while back and um one of the presents was from um burgett's parents and they sent me a large bottle of pear schnapps so guess what i've got a glass of in front of me right now perfect time of day nice you know the thing is though that that thought process of returning home and and being a downer i mean you must live in a terrible place and you live in a great place i know because you've got wonderful weather out there right now it's, it's probably... Who's laughing? Brian? I was. <laughs> that was a significant English snort then. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I would figure returning to home for you would be just like returning to the castle. You went from one amazing thing to another. Well, let's put it this way. I've come back to a very green and, yeah, some parts of the day pleasant land because <laughs> it's raining a lot here. This is not how weather is supposed to be in May and June. Um, yeah, it's very green outside. But, hey... Um, that's fine. It's um, it's water. We're not going to have any whinges and complaints about low water levels and all of that sort of stuff. And it's still early. It's June. We've still got July, August and September to go. So the sun's coming. Well, I think that you guys know that um, I've been on the road and, and I've had some trouble on the road, actually, more than what I've ever had before. Um, but um, Sam, your your trip wasn't all roses from what I remember. Like I only saw a little bit of your trip and then I've seemed to have disappeared into this world of being on the road. But from what I saw, you had some really lousy weather. 
Yeah, the the ride across from um, Virginia to Arizona was um, challenging from time to time. Um, there was an awful lot of red on the radar and um, there were lots of tornadoes around and so on. Um, but I was very lucky. I had one or two um, episodes under the red. Actually, it's fascinating. I've never, uh, I don't remember having ridden under red on the radar before. And the lightning was so powerful it was actually coming down and hitting the road in front of me and bouncing. And I've never seen that before. It's really impressive as I'm riding. Wow. And the rain is just so heavy. You've just got this flood of water across the road and the wind's pounding you around and all that sort of stuff. So it was quite exciting. Um, and thankfully, I had um, good motorcycle gear on, so I stayed dry, except for my boots. And that was down to me. I had my old Altberg boots on. And these things have been around for ages. And they're old friends. You know how boots get. But they had started leaking um, six months or so ago. And I'd replaced them with new boots. But I thought, well, hey, look, you know, late April in May, the area of the states that I'm going to, I might get a couple of days rain. Yeah, well, the optimistic in me um, failed miserably this time because I rode with mobile swimming pools pretty much every day. That sounds like one of those style things. You, you actually wore those old boots, so you you know, you'd look more of the character rather than wearing some brand no new shiny way. boots. No <laughs> way. This was a, a last hurrah for those boots because they've been so faithful and such wonderful boots to to wear. I thought, right, I'm going to give you one last journey. And yeah, well, I shouldn't have done. But hey, sometimes you learn lessons the hard way, don't you? Well, and they've given you a reason to get rid of them now. Well, yeah, but, you know, the thing is, I've still got them on the shelf and I'm finding it really hard to get rid of them. You know, I'm this, I love old gear. I'm the, I'm the same way. I, I actually don't like new stuff at all. I, I really have this thing about new, shiny things that look just too new and unused. I love things that are well-worn. You know, they've got the creases and everything. There's something about them. And you look at them, you think, I've been through so much with these things. I've been so much, with, you know, with these boots, like my old hiking boots I still have, even though I got another pair of hiking boots. And Beth, she wants to throw them out. She keeps bugging me to try and throw them out. I keep coming up with the reasons. They're great work boots. They're completely thrashed and worn out. But I love the boots, you know. That's why Gosh, I, this sounds awfully familiar. I've used the work boot line as well. I don't know what you feel, though. You know, guys, when you're wearing new boots, do you not have the feeling that you're walking around in Frankenstein's boots? Because oh, yeah. they don't flex and bend, do they? You sort of stomp instead of stroll. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Or you, sit, or you sit in front of the television for days with them on, trying to wear them in. Hang I've on, done that. Too often. Get them soaking wet first. Yes. Yes, and then dry them to your feet. I want to bring yep. up Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks in Australia because you guys are up very early in the morning. Brian, you've just returned from a huge trip and you brought a whole bunch of people home with you. Oh, yeah, we had a great night last night, 10 people. Um, I came home from riding around Australia, uh, on the mainland, that is. So we've done, uh, we're trying to work it out exactly because we crisscrossed a little bit, ran just under 15,000 kilometres in the last month. Mm. Um, so uh, it's been a, a pretty constant ride, but we've experienced everything from the beautiful east coast and into the hinterland and um uh, getting rid of the chicken strips on the sh- side of the tyres to uh, up into Queensland and then out across the, the plains there, going from green to brown and then uh, um, the um, higher speeds up in the Northern Territory under a police escort, actually, which they seem to sit on 
the speed limit, which is 130 kilometres an hour, and anything over that's fine, seems to be. So we did a bit of that that high speed running, and then um, down um, down the west coast of Australia into some severe crosswinds. Now it's terrible. Well, it can be terrible riding into crosswinds and you try and find that sweet spot where you don't get buffeted and then you get passed by a 53-metre-long uh, uh, road train going the other way and the wind that comes off those either sucks you in or tries to blow you off the road, depending on which way it's going. Um, we had a bit of that. We had um, an inch of rain coming out of Perth, which is supposed to be the sunniest city, uh, up into the, the Nullarbor Plain and then down the coast and beaches and ate and drank and uh, met a lot of mates and had a lot of fun and some very interesting um, things with a blown front tyre at 110 kilometres an hour by one of our riders. Has anyone ever experienced having a blown out front tyre, like it going bang no, at that sort of speed? I'm glad I haven't. No, I've been lucky. Yeah. I, I've ridden with somebody and that happened and you just think, how on earth did you stay on? Yeah, well, um, he was on one of those big K1600 BMWs and he classes himself as a crash test dummy for, for Victoria Police because he gets to, to test everything and he was testing these new tyres. I'm not sure whether I should name the brand, but um, Shirley's waving her finger at me saying, no, don't do that. Yes, um, do that. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why try and hide something? It happened. There's nothing well, odd there. Well, well, they actually gave him the tyres to test and they said, we want you to test these tyres and see how they go. And we were constantly, because they're, they're built for the big heavy bike like the, the K1600. And um, the back one, we were getting a bit concerned about it. We are starting to get a few ripples in it. We thought it might have been on its way out before we could get to Perth for a change of tyres. And then the front one started to delaminate and you could see it. Uh, and we are hundreds of kilometres from any sort of service. So um, Spike decided to just ride it and ride it and ride it and see how it went. And he's going along um, oh, about 200 kilometres out of Geraldton on the Western Australian coast and it's gone bang. And uh, it had a big uh, uh, tear in the in the, the middle of it, um, but being such a good rider, is he rode it to a halt. And being good mates like we did, we left one, and the rest of us carried on to the nearest pub. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason was is because the winds were coming from the inland, which doesn't sound like much, but in Australia that means flies. And uh, standing on the side of the road, you would have. A thousand flies hang around you, and it, it is, and um, you know those silly-looking nets you get over your face. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually have two in the car, in the truck we normally go in, but um, this time we didn't have them, so we had to go and buy them. Um, so Spike standing there with his fly net on and complaining about the flies, and one of the uh, wags on our trip said, "You know these flies, geez, they must go fast. How the hell every time we stop, they're there." So they're going as fast as what we are. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. You know, that, that story of that blown tire makes me feel better because it scares me when I hear something, something like this, you know, tire blowing. But, I mean, if it's delaminating in advance, you spotted it, he decided to push it, that's a different story. 
Yeah. Well, it is, yeah. But and, and again, he's testing him. And the, uh, to credit to the company, they've uh, they flew out an executive to from uh, Europe, and um, they've taken the tyre back to see what went wrong, and um, paid for his tow to the nearest town, and then paid for a new set of other brand tyres, <laughs> uh, which are still on the bike and still going strong. <laughs> oh, well, I take it in both cases that they paid for a new underwear. Uh, yeah, well, th- that was mentioned, and uh, there was a purchase of new underwear at one stage. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, Grant, uh, we ate and drank. We ate oysters, more oysters, uh, fish. Shirley's just about to hit me because she loves oysters. You oh, talking? I just wondered whether I was ever going to get a Oh, lead. sorry. Sorry, Shirley. <laughs> on and on and on. Oh, I forgot oh, you were even there, Shirley. Sorry. <laughs> Brian was just sucking up all the air. (laughs) Jim, do you do realise that you've just had an electronic slap from Shirley? Yeah, a big one. (laughs) That's what we should have. We should have like, you know, some sort of little thing that you attach to each of us, right? So you can do that. That that would be an interesting little addition to the show. Exactly. Exactly. Jim, your imagination is too powerful. (laughs) So it's just gone six o'clock in the morning here. It's still dark, but it is um, zero degrees outside. We're about to head for our first big frost of the winter. Brian's been away for a month and came home with a few friends to play with. So we had a big dinner party last night and uh, he leaves again today so I can clean up the kitchen and get the house back in order. Yeah, we're riding south. The into colder weather. Colder weather, yeah. Serves him right, really. So it's zero and it's going to warm up from there before you go, right? Yeah, it'll probably get to um, 10 today. We've just, we've had some beautiful weather here over the last few weeks, but we've had some rain, which is wonderful because we've been, uh, it's been very dry, but we've had a lot of good rain. So everything's nice and green, but now it's getting to the chilly mornings and then it'll be a beautiful clear day, but it's just a little bit on the brisk side at the moment. Mm-hmm. You, you don't get any snow at your place? No, not where we are, but um, friends of ours who live about 50 kilometres away, they get snow, mm-hmm. but we just get frost. Well, and Brian, where, where surely where is Brian off to next? Uh, thanks, Jim. Um, <laughs> they're going into Melbourne today and uh, they get the ferry to Tassie tonight and then they'll do a quick lap of Tassie for four days and he'll be home on Monday. So uh, we're on the downward run now. Yes, and I'm picking up my two sons uh, who are going to come down to Tasmania with us and uh, we'll have a couple of really good rides down through there and a couple of mates are going to lead us through some roads we've probably never seen before. Uh, yes, but they were going to go through the centre of Tasmania, but the uh, forecast is, um, what was it, minus five with the top of three plus snow, so they're now going to stick to the coast. Mm, smart move. Yeah, well, <laughs> smartish. <laughs> Well, also in our, in our conversation here that we should bring in Grant Johnson. I hope he's still awake um, because Grant has just arrived back from a long flight to, I'm not really sure where, I think somewhere in the UK. Grant, are you still awake? Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <I'm here. laughs> Again, that zapper. See, that would be great. Yes, you need to be a little jolt to wake me up. <laughs> yes, I'm awake. Just, um, yeah, yesterday was 26 hours nonstop without sleep, so... Well, a couple of hours dozing on the plane, which is never worth anything to speak of. Uh, but we're home. We got home last night at 1030. It's now just past noon, and I'm sort of awake. I'm feeling okay. 
But we had an amazing trip. It was Hub UK, our biggest event of the year. Uh, it's always special. It's, it's the first one we ever had, and it's a very special event to us. The turnout was great. We had lots of people. The weather actually cooperated pretty well. Considering it was Wales, it was actually very good. I know a few people didn't come because the weather forecast was pretty ugly, but the weather that was ugly was just a little north of us. So we had a good sunny day on Thursday. We had most of Friday was sunny. With I think we had one big shower for about half an hour. Just absolutely dumped on us for, like I say, a half an hour or so. And then it was fine. And Saturday was a similar thing. Was, the weather was good. Everybody was happy. We had lots of fun great uh, crowd and everybody left on Sunday with happy smiling faces. We had one couple that were come to the meeting like two years ago, I said it was their first event and they got all inspired and they've been planning ever since and they left from the event on Sunday morning for a round the world tour. So we gave them a big send off. That, nice. was, that was really special. Fantastic. Them getting going. Yeah, it's really? always nice when people come and, and they get inspired and they think, you know, gee, you know, I could actually do this. It's actually possible. There's ordinary people at this event that have done these amazing things, and yet they say, well, it's not that amazing. You just get on your bike and you go. Oh, is that all there is to it? I just, just got to get going. The main thing is to make that decision to do something, to go somewhere farther than you usually do, is the phrase I like to use. You know, if you're just a, I remember when I was 16, riding around the block was the first hurdle. Can I get around the block intact? And then can I go six blocks? And then, you know, it was, I could ride across town. Well, town wasn't very, very big then. But then, oh, I could actually go across the river to, the, to another town. Every step that you take that's farther than before is an adventure for you. So that's okay. So everybody has to, to make that extra step. So when they come to these events, they realize that that extra step could be maybe a little, little bigger than what you've been thinking. Maybe you can do another country. Maybe you can do another continent. Maybe you could even do around the world if the circumstances in life are fortunate for you in that regard. Some people can, some people can't. But you can always do a micro-adventure, something more than you've typically been doing. I always like to use the example of, oh, you know, you can actually just get on an airplane with your helmet in hand, fly to Thailand or fly to India and rent a bike for a couple of weeks and ride around and have an amazing adventure and fly home. No big deal. And guess what? It's actually shockingly cheap. So just get out and do something. Yeah. And that was really brought home to me at the event this weekend. What do you mean with people that are doing shorter trips? Yeah, people are, are realizing that you don't have to do the big round-the-world trip. I mean, Horizons Unlimited is often seen as the place for the hardcore round-the-world adventurer, but it's not really. Yes, we attract those people, and they're they're kind of I guess I hate to use the word stars, but they kind of are the stars. Um, but they always tell you, you can do do whatever you can do. Just do something. And a lot of people were talking about that this weekend. And we've been using the micro-adventures phrase for quite a while now. Do what you can. Do something more than the usual. And that's fine. You'll have a great time. But do something. You said the UK is where it all started. That's where you started in the, like your backyard yeah, we were living in England in 2001, and uh, Susan's mother was not healthy. So we said, well, okay, we're going to have to go back to Canada. So we put out a notice, and this the website had only been going for four years at that point, and we said, uh, we're going to go back to Canada, so we're going to have a little party, a going-away party in our backyard. Anybody who wants to come is welcome. Well, people came from as far away as Norway for the weekend. 
we took over the neighbor's backyard in, in England. A lot of the fences you can act there in, in slots. You can lift out the the slots, the, the eight foot sections out, and have full access to the yard next door. So we lifted out all these fence bits and took over the neighbor's yards. And we had tents strewn all over the place and bikes everywhere and had a wonderful weekend. It was amazing. And uh, near the end of it, some guy said, you got to do this again. You got to do this again. This is great. And we said, well, um, yeah, but, but we're not going to be here. We're leaving. This is a going away party. Oh, yeah, but, but okay. And somebody put up their, their hand. It was Glenn Roberts. And he said, I'll make it happen. And he did. So the next year was the next second HU Travelers meeting in the UK. And it's grown by leaps and bounds ever since. Now, I didn't know that, Grant. We really? went to the 2003 one. Right. That would have been um, Somerset, if I remember rightly. Well, some um, rundown, probably condemned pub. pub. Summercoats. Yes. Summercoats, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yep, that's where it all started. So it, wasn't, it was never a plan to be an events company. <laughs> but now we are, kind of. So, yeah, so it got started, and it's been going ever since. We had one off year in 2015 because we couldn't find a venue that was suitable for what we want. We've got a, uh, a tricky requirements for venue. It has to be good camping. It has to have some hotel accommodation or at least very nearby. It has to have lots of rooms for presentations. And the price has to be sensible, and very often that's the biggest problem. We had one place suggested to us that it was 50,000 pounds for the weekend. It was wonderful, but there's no way. <laughs> So, anyway, we're there. The venue we have now is Baskerville Hall in Wales. And, yes, that is the place that is the inspiration for The Hound of the Baskervilles by Conan Doyle. So, it's a historic building. It's really cool. And it works absolutely perfect for us. So, people are welcome to come next year. It's the same weekend, June 14 to 16. It's going to be a good one. That's very cool. It's a neat creation story to think that it started out like that and it's uh, and it's gone to what it is now because um, now you can, I mean, it's all over. You've got, uh, I think, was it 26 different events now? Yeah, I've lost count, but it's about 25, 26 somewhere in, mm -hmm. I think it's either 15 or 16 countries. We've just opened up Latvia and Romania opened a month or two ago. Um, got Montenegro for faraway places. Uh, Mongolia is another one. And there's South Africa. Uh, Australia, et cetera. There's, there's lots of events. Somewhere, somewhere near you, there is a Horizons Unlimited Travelers meeting that you can get to. Uh, a while back, we had someone uh, suggest a topic of when to stop riding. It's kind of a tough topic. And we, we talked about it and we talked with him because this is a guy that that, that, that emails uh, you know every now and then we hear from him. And um, as a matter of fact, he suggested another topic to us. And I, and I can't remember what. Oh, I, I think it was... Um, Deep vein thrombosis. Uh, he, he suggested that uh, a ways back. But anyway, he mentioned this topic. So this topic of when to stop riding. How do you know when it's time? And we sort of looked and we thought, you know, it's a, I don't know, it's sort of a negative way to look at it. We, I'd rather look at how do we extend our riding season in, in life. And, and I think that's what we've sort of changed the, the thought process to is how we extend ourselves. You know, and it's interesting. When you're young, and I'm sure everybody here can relate to that. When you're younger... Um, when you think about aging, you, you just don't get it, do you? I mean, when you're under, like, let's, let's say go back to, like, when you are 30 and your views on aging, could you imagine it was going to be, like, what it is at whatever age you're at now? 
Well, no, not really. I'll just relate a little story. We were staying at a little old pub in the back of uh, back blocks of South Australia, a little place called Crystal Brook, only a few days ago. And one of our party came downstairs and we were loading up the bikes. He said, oh, my ankle is killing me. I don't know what I've done. Uh, uh, he suffers from gout every now and then. He said, it's not gout. I know it's not gout. So there was... Us ageing bikers all standing there have just ridden around the country. Everyone opened up a medical kit and he had everything available to him from Endone to the Green Dream to uh, <laughs> everybody had something for pains and aches, uh, Voltaren, you name it, we had it. <laughs> Which I felt, I just sat there and laughed. It's I thought, a sign yeah, of the times. yeah, well, maybe that's how you keep going. You keep me- uh, self medicating. I don't know. <laughs> It's uh, it's having to deal with what you have to deal with. And and what I was saying is when you're younger, when you're looking forward, you don't ever imagine, at least I didn't for sure. And I think a lot of people are like this. You can't imagine because you haven't been there. You don't know what it's going to be like. And, and I think the mistake that we make when we're younger is having that mentality that, well, I'm in some way I'm not going to get old and I, and I don't really have to prepare for it because I feel fine right now. But so are, are there any things that you guys do to, to keep yourself ride fit or have you put thought process in, into this coming up to the age that you're at now? You don't have to say how old you are. I think it's mostly down to your mental attitude. Um, I've had guys come up to me at the events. And I remember one guy a while ago said, uh, you know, Grant, I'm, I'm getting too old for this kind of stuff. I don't know. It's just, it's just too hard. And I said, well, how old are you? And he said, 64. And I told him my age, which is older than 64, and he went, oh, well, hmm. So it's all about in your head. You decide how old you are and whether you want to do it and whether you have it, whether you want to get down to doing nothing or, well, let me relate a story. Simon Gandolfi is a wonderful old man. He looks like Santa Claus. He'd be a perfect stand-in for Santa Claus, just fine. Uh, he rode around India on his own on a 250cc. Uh, he rode around South America on his own on a 250. And his kids kept saying, Granddad, why do you want to, why do you keep doing these crazy trips? And he says, well, what do you want me to do? Sit around home and watch television? Well, um, yeah. no, actually. Yeah. You know, you, you, you need to decide that you want to get out and go. You need to decide that you want to have a life to continue to enjoy life and have experiences that matter to you and that are worth living for. Otherwise, you might as well sit on the television, on the couch and watch television and your maximum exercise is twiddling the remote control and quietly die, bored out of your mind. I think the, I think the other thing, Grant, is as you get older, you should stop making commitments to your body that you would have been able to meet when you were in your 30s. Sure. Because you can still do everything. You just maybe need to take a little bit longer doing it. Um, We've thought about changing the bike because the GS is very tall and, you know, a a bike that would be slightly easier to get on and off would would, um, prolong things. And instead of riding around Australia in 18 days, as Brian did about eight years ago, he just did it in um, 31 so that's Sensible. a sign of, of being a little bit smarter, not not completely smart, don't get me wrong. But. <laughs> don't give them too much credit. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we need to be pragmatic. Something else that came up over the weekend several times, um, you need to be pragmatic in deciding what is it that makes sense for me here now today. 
Um, and the, the case that I'm thinking of particularly, somebody was talking about getting sick. And he says, you get sick and you find someplace cheap and you stay there and it's not a big deal. and You're not wasting any money. Well, no, but you're sick. Do you want to sit in a rat hole and maybe die in there because nobody's bothering to check on you because they really don't care? Or you want to stay in a nice hotel where you can get room service, clean sheets, the room changed and made up and they'll bring food for you. And, oh, yeah, by the way, they'll go and get a doctor if you need it. Or do you stay in a rat hole? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it, that's the time to spend money. You're not well. Do something sensible. Be pragmatic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, when it comes true. to how far am I going to ride today? Well, maybe I would have done 1,000-mile days once upon a time when I was in my crazy youth. But, no, that's just dumb. Yeah, Why would exactly. I do that? Why would I subject myself to that? You know, I, yeah, I hear riders being embarrassed and feeling lesser persons because they're, in inverted commas, downgrading. And I always hate to hear that because they're doing what they've always done as motorcyclists. They're adapting to the conditions, to the situations. And I just yep. think surely as riders get older, um, mostly they've reached a time in life where mine is bigger than yours. Testosterone really isn't relevant anymore. What is relevant is keeping enjoying the part of their lives that have given them so much pleasure, the challenge, the learning opportunity. Plus, of course, the amazing camaraderie. And that's something else. You know, I think as riders get older, um, perhaps, you know, it's things like do less riding on your own and ride with somebody else. So if you do damn well drop your bike, you've got somebody there to give you a hand to pick it up. And yep. I'm not too afraid to ask for somebody to give me a hand to pick my bike up. I dropped it on my street outside my house um, a few months back. And um, the only passers-by were ladies. So I wasn't too afraid to ask a lady passerby if she'd give me a hand to pick my bike up. And the expression on her face was an absolute dream. And I tell you what, I bet she's telling that story still about how she managed to help this leather-clad motorcyclist <laughs> pick his bike up. Yeah, Probably yeah. sitting in a pub yep, laughing, cool. having a beer, and saying, and then he turned to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Look, look on, this, on this trip, we, we went to a, a little town on the west coast of um, WA, Western Australia, called Durian Bay. And there there was a, a guy who is in his 70s, and he still rides, but he's turned himself into a collector as well. He has 68 Vincent motorcycles. Now, wow. do you know how much one Vincent motorcycle is worth? Wow. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know he that talks, you could get that many in one place. Well, he has, he, he has the largest independent collection of Vincent motorcycles anywhere in the world. He was oh, he's quite a wealthy man. He was a, a, a cray pot fisherman, so they make big money. But he still likes to ride, and uh, he... He got rid of his encumbrance, which I, he called his wife, oh. <laughs> and, built, and built the house around his collection of motorbikes. <laughs> and uh, we'd heard about this bloke. He's never advertised anywhere. So we went to the local pub and, and spoke to the barman. I said, now, where do we find this, Ian? He said, oh, it's just up the street, you know, just right up there. And uh, it's the, the cream house on the right. So we go up there, and as we're riding up there, a car comes past. And I had a little difficulty finding the house. Next thing, a car comes back. He said, you boys wouldn't be looking for me, would you? He takes us in there. And all right, he had his 68 Vincent motorcycles. He knew the history of every one of them, from the rider to speed uh, speedway sidecars to when they were used as um, drones for, um, uh, for uh, jet fighters to shoot down in the 50s, things like that. And uh, he also has an E-type Jag, but... 
to keep himself riding, what he has is a Triumph Bonneville with a screen on it, and he will ride it from Perth right across to the eastern states of Australia. He's a, a little, you know, he's getting on in age. So to me, that made a lot of sense. He loves his collection of motorcycles. He's got the reputation for collecting these motorcycles, but his daily ride is a, a smaller motorbike. And, you know, Stephen Durnley, who formed the Ulysses Club here in Australia, he was riding well into his late 80s. And what he did was he downsized his motorcycle. He was actually riding a scooter um, by the time he, he got to the, the age, you know, I think, in the last 12 months of his life. And there's another story about a guy here who, um, in South Australia, he's in his 90s. And every year there is the speed runs they do on um, Lake Gardner out in the, the back blocks of South Australia, which is uh, getting just as big, if not bigger than Bonneville, because Bonneville's just about knackered uh, because of the water. And the American uh, races come out here. He's in his 90s and he preps his old Royal Enfield thing that runs on God knows what to get these enormous speeds. He can't ride every day. But here he is in his 90s, pushing a bike well, well, well beyond its design limits. Hey, why not? Why don't you keep going? Wow, yeah, that's that's inspirational for sure. I mean, it's, everybody can't do it. Uh, you know, I contacted yeah. a, a fellow I know called David Huff. Uh, David is well known in the motorcycle industry. He's he's a, sort of an ex motorcyclist at this point because he doesn't ride anymore. He's he's hung it up. He's older. He's um, written he's, books like Proficient Motorcycling and a, a bunch of other things. Um, a guy who's been really connected with motorcycling. And what he said to me was uh, what he what he wrote in an email to me just today was. He says, um, at 54, you may swear you'll never stop riding, but at age 65 or 75, you might find your attitude about motorcycle changing or your priorities shifting more from motorcycling to health. And then he sort of went on to talk about, about health being such an important thing because he said, you know, as you get older, yes, there's, there's the mental thing that you have to, the, the mental part of the challenge of riding, I guess, but because we slow down. There's your sight. There's your hearing uh, that all changes as we age. But most importantly, something that he even did an article for Motorcycle Consumer News not long ago about was the fact that um, staying fit through worrying about what you eat is such a huge part of staying sort of ride fit. Because if we're too heavy, if we're overweight or or completely out of shape, we can't swing our, our legs over the bike. I mean, that's a big part of it. And I know some people, you know, will naturally stay fit and some people are more active. Some people eat better. But um, one thing that David pointed out, he says, if you're if you're around 50 now and you want to keep riding into your older age, he says, you need to get serious about food choices. What do you guys think about food affecting us as riders? Stony um, silence. Sam, you go first. Um, I just think that I, I see so many motorcyclists and we see these joke cartoons on Facebook and Twitter and this sort of thing about the different type of motorcyclists and the waistlines that they have. Um, well, um, BMW GS riders certainly don't have the biggest waistlines, but they certainly don't do um, in the cartoon form have big waistlines. I, I go to motorcycle rallies and things like that quite a lot and I see the crap that people eat. Um, and I see the waistlines expanding and I hear the comments about how tired people get and this sort of stuff. And I think, yeah, you know, start eating healthy, take care of your body and it'll take care of you. Certainly for longer, um, you put, you it's, it's like putting the wrong fuel in your bike, isn't it? It's not mm. going to work very well. Yeah, good analogy. 
Yeah. And then that's sort of what I was saying about, you know, when you're younger and you think that you're going to be fine, you can eat pizza and, 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 you know, all kinds of garbage food and it doesn't bother you. But as you get older in particular, that's where things start to show up. And if you don't try and keep your health up as you're starting to get into your, your later years, there's going to be a point where you're going to have to deal with the, the results of what you've done sort of. And it, I don't think like, I, I know as we get older, it's much harder to change your body. It's much harder to lose weight. It's harder to get fit. I mean, all of those things that were so easy when you're young. Yeah, I think part of it is also it's so much harder to change your mind, um, change the way you think about things. I know my mother, she's 97, still very healthy, very active, doing lots of things. But try and get her to change her mind, forget it. It's not going to happen. She makes up her mind once. Maybe it was 50 or 80 years ago she made up her mind on something, <laughs> and that's it. Like, it's not going to change. <laughs> so yeah, I look at that. True. And, and I, that's, that's common. As you get older, you get to the point where I've lived this long and this is the decisions I've made along my life and I must be correct because I'm here. Well, actually, no, mm -hmm. you may have been told old wives tales or flat out lies or been completely misinformed. You need to be able to change your mind on how you approach things. And food is a very, very big one. Now, there's, I could go on and on and on, and Susan can do it much better than I can about this whole low-fat nonsense um, in our food. You know, they, they say that you should eat stuff that's low-fat. Well, actually, no, you shouldn't. That was a lie that was perpetuated. And look it up on the Internet if you want. Um, but basically, low-fat foods are actually not good for you. They're full of crap. So our basic philosophy has been for many, many years is we shop from the outside of the grocery store. The stuff that's in the middle is bad, canned and packaged and processed and full of products that you can't even think like, what, how do you even pronounce that word? Um, you don't want to eat that stuff. It's not good for you. It's a way to make money. Um, it's oh, not yes. something that's healthy for you. A perfect example of that, Grant, it came from yesterday. Birgit and I were in the supermarket and we were looking at yogurts. Um, Birgit loves plain yogurt. And um, there was the, the various different options. Isn't it amazing how many options you, we get on our supermarket yeah. shelves? But um, we were looking at um, full-fat yogurt and um, half-fat yogurt. And Birgit said, um, no, I'm never going to buy the half-fat yogurt. And I said, go on, then tell me why. And she said, well, go on, pick up the labels and have a read. So the full-fat yogurt had something like 1% sugar. Um, the low-fat yogurt had something like 9% sugar. Yep, there you go. Yeah. That's, and, and, and that's what they have to do because you sugar. take the fat out. You need something to get the taste there. So that's, they load yep. it with sugar and, and they don't say that. Yeah. Nope. Well, that's it's what it's all about. Marketing bollocks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've got a choice of fat or sugar. And the fat is actually considerably healthier for you. It's, it's not a coincidence that the rise in obesity worldwide has coincided with the advent of low fat is good for you. Yes. Yeah. So, Brian, so. sorry, I interrupted you twice. Oh, then. yeah. No, 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 that's fine. That's fine. And I agree with all the comments in relation to diet. But the other issue as you get older, I think, is maintaining your, your, your strength. And resistance training has been proven in older people to keep them fit and healthy and supple. Just we're not talking about pumping big iron weights here, but just some sort of resistance training against your muscles, your your biceps, your triceps, your your back muscles, your stomach muscles, and your leg muscles. And if you can keep that going, that's a good sign. Now, I, I was trying to find a study, and I haven't been able to find it, but I'm sure there was a Japanese university that did a study on aging uh, people in their population, and they found that. Uh, 
older motorcycle riders, people who continue to ride motorcycles, their peripheral vision is actually a lot better than those that don't. And that makes a lot of sense because you're actually using your eyes all the time. And as long as you can keep yourself supple, healthy, um, well-coordinated is another issue. I think that you need to make sure that you, you can maintain that coordination between hand, eye and feet and all the rest of it. There's no reason why you can't keep riding. And Cheryl's right, you know, the, the GS is a big bike and I'm quite capable of, um, uh, of throwing it around in my 60s, but when I get to the 70s, that may not be the case. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, will, I will continue to ride as long as I can. If I have to downsize bikes, that's fine. And, you know, I've, I've thought that all along. I'm, I'm collecting older bikes at the moment. And if I have to sit in my shed and tinker with old bikes and just ride around the block, that's fine as long as I keep doing it. You know, I like the way you said that, Brian, that you said you're going to ride as long as you can because it, it's, it sounds very sensible rather than saying I'm, I'm never going to stop riding. Because I think that's something that, that David Huff pointed out here is as you get older, you're going to look at it differently. And, and, and I know I do right now. I look at my, the way I ride differently than when I was younger. I mean, I just, I'm just a little bit more cautious, a little bit more sensible. And, and I'm, I think I'm a little bit more in touch with the fact that if I go down, the ground seems to be much harder nowadays than it was when I was younger. The sun, uh, yes. I'm sure. But. You know, the only advantage today is that you're probably wearing much better armor than you were when you were yeah. 20 or 30. Yeah, yeah, you know, when I was racing in, in, at uh, 18 and 19, um, armor consisted of, um, well, actually, there was no such thing as armor. The word was never mentioned. It was you raced in a pair of leather trousers and a sweatshirt. That was it. <laughs> And, yeah. that, and a yeah. pair of work boots. That, you had a helmet on. That was it. You see these. I, I was I was going to add, Brian, to to what you were saying about the resistance training is stretching because that's something that I've started to do, yeah. and I found it makes a big difference. Is stretching right? I, what I do is I ride for a bit, and then as I get into the the tougher stuff, I'll just take. Well, I guess maybe it's not even it's not even ten minutes and stretch. I found it it um, it makes for far less little muscle pulls. Yeah. Jim, you're so right with this, and I, I see people. Um, they're getting off their bikes because they're tired and they need a rest. So they get off their bikes and they stand there next to their bikes having a chat with their mates. And then they, a few minutes later, they climb back on their bikes and they leave. And that's not really helping them at all. All they're doing is taking the weight off their backsides. What they should be doing is just having a wander around together. Um, 10 minutes of walking around, that gets the whole body limbered up, all of those muscles that haven't been working, working again, and that takes away the tiredness. I stop at least every 100 miles, if not more frequently than that, and have a bit of a walk around. And I, I mean, I love doing that anyway, because that means that I'm stopping and looking at things that I would have ridden on by otherwise, and it's too easy to do that. So I use my backside rests, my stroll breaks, as I call them, to look at stuff. But um, it just means that I can be much more aware when I get back on the bike, because I'm less tired. Yeah. Has anyone watched MotoGP? You watch Valentino Rossi and watch all these boys. Rossi is a classic. He's been doing it for a long time. He's a he's a tall man, but he stretches. He, he uh, kneels down beside his bike. He stretches himself. He also picks his jocks out of his backside every time he comes out of the pits. But that's... <laughs> I think that's a signature now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is. Yeah, I think, I think it's, uh, but, yeah. but seriously, they all, they all do that. They all have um, stretches and all that sort of stuff, and it just makes common sense. Mm-hmm. And I think I think you can extend your riding abilities by 
um, taking that advice. And you know, I, I agree with everything you say, Sam. You and Birgit and and low fat stuff is a load of crap. Really, it's um, uh, it's it's worthwhile just eating better. Um, and look, I, I do have a sugar fix in them. You know, if you're riding long distances and you need a sugar fix towards the end of the day, I'll do that. But um, it's getting um, rarer as I get older. I must admit. You do know that a sugar fix is only good for about half an hour, and then it drops you on your ass. Yeah, I know. I know. Okay. Good. Yeah, I, I don't care. I, I like the excuse, and I use it too. <laughs> I need a sugar fix. <laughs> well, I make a point of having a sugar fix and a protein fix. In other words, some yeah. nuts as well at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nuts or cheese, because mm. the, the uh, protein will last a lot longer. The sugar picks you up for the moment, and then the yeah. protein keeps you going, which is much yeah, better than that crash. Nuts yeah, and dry fruit and things, are, they're also so easy to carry on the bike. Yep. They don't spoil. Well, they don't not so out. much, but um, certainly you can take a little container or a plastic bag with some um, nuts and dried fruit for a little snack along the way. Yep. Well, don't make the mistake that I made once, and I will never make again, of throwing in uh, some bits of chocolate into the mm. uh, bag of, of nuts. Because no. you stick your hand in at some point, and it'll be a sticky, gooey mess. Mm. And that's why they invented Smarties and M&Ms. Smarties and M&Ms, you betcha. Because those coatings allow you to put it in your pocket and take it with you anywhere you go. Yep, perfect. Uh, lovely. <laughs> I do that a lot. You were talking about uh, how good riding gear is. Just a little story. One of the guys on our ride, just prior to the ride, he um, got taken out by a huge pothole on his front wheel on an angle and ended up sliding down the road under his BMW GS. And walked away from it because he had the full GS riding gear on, three thousand dollar suit, mm-hmm. which was shredded, but he was able to walk away with just a sprained ankle. Now he did wow. that just to save nice. scratching his BMW. Yep. That's exactly <laughs> what I said to him. That's exactly what I said. Such a bike. He said. He said he actually had to bench press the bike off him to get out. Wow. From the Jeez. Somebody's got a good guardian angel as well as good taste in most cycle gear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Brian, you, you, I think you use the word extending, extending your, your, your riding season or extending the, your ability to ride through life. What about other things? Has, has anyone considered or got to the point where they're looking at the third wheel? Not yet. Uh, but you never know. I don't look at people who use them and they, they seem to be very happy. They're enjoying it. They're getting out there and they're riding. More credit to them. I don't care. I have thought about a sidecar. I don't know whether I could go to the three-wheeler option. Well, that's what I mean. mean, The third wheel being the sidecar, whether it's a spider. uh, Yeah, yeah, the the spiders, the can-am things. I'm not so sure about those. I mean, yeah, I I, I think about the sidecar. Mm. I really would. I I think that's quirky. It's got all these sorts of... um, things that are going on with it that uh, you could do lots of different things with it. And I've got a mate who's uh, actually gone out and bought a Ural and uh, loves it, goes to rallies on it. He's had a lot of health problems. Um, he used to ride a Goldwing and he dropped that and found it too hard to pick up and all the rest of it and then a Harley and all sorts of things. And he's gone to a, a Ural sidecar and absolutely loves it, puts his dog in it and goes to rallies. 
Mm-hmm. I've, only, I've only ever met one person or one couple that haven't been enjoying um, their sidecar. I mean, I can see how people would be concerned about the additional cost of the outfit rig um, and the additional fuel because they do suck up more fuel than two wheels, those sorts of things. But if they still allow you to keep riding and everybody I've talked to, except for this one couple, um, has thoroughly enjoyed having um, an outfit for all of the many reasons, you know, such as you can't fall off it so easily and you can carry more stuff and um, you go more slowly so that you see more and you attract a lot more conversations with an outfit, et cetera, et cetera. But this one couple's relevant to this conversation because um, he had broken his back and they didn't want to stop um, overlanding trips and he didn't feel that he was going to be strong enough um, with his repaired back to carry on overlanding on two wheels. So they got themselves um, um, an outfit put onto their um, GS and it was a, an off-road outfit. It was really nicely made, beautiful suspension, et cetera, et cetera, on it. And he was hating it because he said, um, actually, it was harder work for him pulling um, the bike around the corners instead of being able to lean into them. Um, And that was actually putting stress on his lower back. And he also said with three wheels, um, his wheels were always hitting something, whereas with two wheels, he'd be able to dodge. And he said as soon as they'd finished the trip, then he was going to get rid of it because actually, even with his disability, um, he was more comfortable on two wheels than three. I've always wondered that about steering. I've, yeah. I've always pictured the steering being tougher. But but the the next thought that comes to mind is why aren't why isn't Ural going to well maybe this is a stupid question but why isn't Ural going to what a lot of the ATVs have gone to is electronic assist steering where you would um, you you don't have to fight it it's very easy to turn. Incredibly complex is why and it would ask add significant dollars. That's that's a, the antithesis of what a Ural is. Mm. Uh, that's something that they've done with the Can-Am Spider. But just just a comment on the difficulty of steering. Sam said the bike was beautifully done up and stuff. If it had telescopic forks, yes, uh, an outfit is going to be difficult to steer. If you put the Earl's type forks on it, it makes a massive, massive difference. I can't overstate how much difference. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was going to say, Grant. Yeah, that makes a huge difference. Has to have those forks on it, or an outfit's crap. No, he did have those forks on it. Um, I mean, I didn't know very much about it, but. Yeah, I know. I, I've I've ridden sidecars myself. Yeah, not enough to say I have any amount of experience on them. Other than yes, I've ridden one. So what? Um, but people I talk to say if it's properly set up, it should be easy to ride. It should not be a lot of difficulty. But if it's not set up right, they can be horror shows. And setting it up is an art. You have to have an expert to do it. Can I share a story with you about um, traveling through Central Asia with a guy, um, a French Canadian who was riding a bike with a sidecar? And uh, usually when we have people riding with us, I try and look in the mirrors to make sure they're still there. I didn't have to with him because I could hear his sidecar falling apart as the roads were so bad and we were able to dodge most of the big potholes just having two wheels in one line, but he was hitting potholes and one day we thought he must have come off and we were waiting and waiting and waiting for him to catch up and when he finally caught up, there were big bits of the sidecar strapped on to other bits of the sidecar because they'd actually it had actually started to come apart. So um, while the he could carry extra stuff theory worked because he was able to, you know, he had lots of gear that... Um, 
you wouldn't have been able to carry it with just the bike, but certainly the sidecar wasn't quite so advantageous on the really bad roads of Central Asia. Mm. That's interesting because the sidecar, it, it's you know, I think for a lot of people, it, it has this um, ruggedness to it. You know, it has this go anywhere look to it that um, makes yeah. it look like you've turned your motorcycle, especially the two-wheel drive version, turns your motorcycle into this, I don't know, all-terrain vehicle, I guess. Yeah, so long as you go slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's oh, that's the trick. Maybe he was trying to keep up with Brian. Uh, yes. Oh, it's Brian's fault. Three, three miles at over 50 miles an hour is really strung out. I mean, 50 is kind of comfortable cruising speed. And they were designed for the back roads of, of rural Russia of the, of the 20s, uh, where it was absolute crap conditions. So trying to go fast on them, no, they're designed to carry a load of sheep, goats, mar- uh, produce, whatever, to market. That's it. Speed is not a factor. So if you treat them with, if you understand that and ride them accordingly, they're fine. Don't try and go fast. There was a, uh, a report on the state of the motorcycle industry called Give a Shift. We covered it on Adventure Rider Radio, but they got a whole bunch of people from within the motorcycle industry to talk about the industry and how it's, you know, it may be dying, you know, because the riders are getting older and, and the younger folks aren't coming in, you know, all of those sorts of things we've all heard before. But one of the suggestions they came up with was to align RV dealerships and marketing initiatives to promote lightweight models, meaning motorcycles, as an accessory to the mobile lifestyle. So one of the one one idea was to get old riders into RVs and have them take smaller bikes with them. And you know, as much as I'm smiling while I'm saying this, that makes a lot of sense. I'm actually meeting a lot of people um, at events in the United States where that exactly that's happening. Yeah, where yeah, they're, yeah, they're doing yeah. shorter rides. They, they drive comfortably with their RV. They do shorter rides and explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, they're, they're living in the, their RVs. The, the Ulysses Club here in Australia, they have an RV club within the Ulysses Club. So mm. the, the um, older riders um, take their car, caravan, or there's a thing called, uh, uh, I'm just trying to think of the name of it, a caravan that the the back folds out and you can put your um your bike inside it if you want. A lot of them take that and they, they do that. Shorter rides. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as you keep riding. And you're right, the motorcycle manufacturers are going that way. Motor Guzzi just released an uh eight hundred or eight fifty CC adventure bike and the big adventure bikes are getting smaller and lighter. Mm-hmm. And to me that is uh catering for a market that is getting older and uh, isn't so enamoured with straight-out horsepower or CCs and is looking for something that is quite capable. This thing's, you know, still got 100 brake horsepower and it's it's weighing 200 kilos fully loaded and, it's, you know, I'm sure there'll be lighter ones than that out there. You know, the, yeah, I, I really think that's the trick, getting lighter bikes, keeping yourself fit and healthy and um, uh, resistance training. They're, you know, I'm really not Sure. Sorry, Brian, I'm interrupting you again. Sorry. That's all right, mate. Go. I'm I'm just not sure that I would want to do an overlanding trip on anything bigger than a 650 nowadays. And, uh, you know, one up, um, two up, maybe that's a different ball game. But we just don't need to have the bigger and heavier bikes to do overlanding trips. And a reality check for people, um, motorcycling has always included all sorts of um, types of bikes, sizes and weights and everything. And it's always been that way. And the reality check is that I think people should realize that it's okay to ride any bike they like. If they feel happy on it and it gets them around, then that's the perfect bike. It's not what the media tells them. 
is the best bike that they should be on. It's what makes them happy, what makes them feel that they're in control and what gives them the buzz. Well, any yeah. dealer will make you feel that way because quite often they'll tell you, you know, well, the, the 600 or, or the 300 is a good starter bike and then you can upgrade to the 800 and then you can upgrade to the 1250. Well, to a lot of people, I mean, you know, who are, who are really into riding and not the, the image so much, they might think that, well, that, that's not an upgrade. That's a downgrade going to a bigger, heavier bike. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, and I'm not yeah. saying it is, but I'm just saying that, you know, I think there's that mentality in the industry that smaller bikes are beginner bikes, bigger bikes are for the people who really know better. And that's why most people are always looking for that next bigger bike. Because it's um, always yeah. a bigger bike. Yeah. Always. I just, I, I mean, I've probably been riding the longest of anybody here. Uh, and I remember when a 650cc motorcycle, which would have been a 650 BSA Lightning, for instance, or a 750 Norton, was a really big bike. That was enormous. It's huge. And you had to be a really good rider to ride it. And they were scary fast. Yeah, about 100 miles an hour. And that was it flat out. But then, of course, they were scary because the brakes were useless and the uh, handling was a joke. Um, <laughs> that might have had something to do with it. I don't know. <laughs> but you just... I mean, that was fast enough. I had a 250 Ducati, which was, wow, I had the biggest bike among all my friends. 160cc Honda for a couple of guys. One of our friends had a 55cc step-through. He flogged the, the life out of that thing, and he kept <laughs> up with us. He did fine. You know, and it's a 55cc. Come on. That's a yeah. joke today, but it did the Boy. job. One of my friends on this trip it, it took a, a 650 V-Strom Suzuki, and uh, it's a great bike, and um, he is planning to take that flight over to South America when he retires to ride South America. And I said nice. to him, it's the perfect bike for it. Mm -hmm. It's light, nimble, easily to protect. Um, you know, it's uh, it'll go anywhere. Don't need anything else. And it hasn't so used a drop of oil in 14,000 kilometres. You know, it's, it's yeah. perfect. Solo, I would take the DR650 myself rather than the V-Strom, but that's just me. It's more off-road capable than the V-Strom. Oh, well, that's that's true, off-road capable. Yeah. But you know, if you want, if you yeah, want um, a, a nice, a nice twin, it's a beautiful little motor in it. Oh yeah, fantastic. Everybody yeah, goes on about, about one. I, I hear so many people go on about that bike. That the the, the the people who own it seem to absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah. One thing, yeah. they're stone reliable. A mechanic said that. Uh, um, and we were just talking to a, a couple of pretty good mechanics here last night that um, there's one guy who said uh, he'd serviced thousands of these things and uh, they're supposed to have their valve adjustments every 24,000 kilometres. He's never had to replace um, the valve um, bucket chin in any of them. Wow. Wow. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. Very impressive bike, yeah. You don't necessarily need a big bike. I mean, we've got a 1200, but we're two up, and I'm still young enough and strong enough that it's okay. But I can tell you, when I ride that 1200 off-road, I am so careful now, much yeah. more careful than I used to be. Because mm. I know if that, I drop take it, take it, it oh, that first wheel young friend. I, 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 I can't agree with that, mate. Say it again. You said you were young. But take that first wheel <laughs> out. Maybe if you're young. I am, young is a state of mind. <laughs> young is a state of mind. That's why they keep calling me a child. I wondered what that was all about. Yeah. Just a little one. Just a little In one. my mind, I'm still 27, but Birgit says that my 13-year-old sense of humor complicates things. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, Jim, going back to what you were talking about with um, the conferences and so on, um, in a, a thought that came into my mind is that perhaps the designers, motorcycle manufacturers, aren't actually joining two important dots when they're working on their future designs. I think that motorcycle designers should be thinking about two things. They should be getting motor people who are um, to be thinking, I would like to, but also I can. So they should be thinking, I would like to, and I can at the same time. And it, it has to be a mix of, of cost, size, fuel consumption, and flexibility, doesn't it? And if manufacturers concentrate on those things, empowering people, making people think, well, yeah, I could do this. It does seem incredibly daunting, but I could. And there's a lot of good reasons why I should. Then maybe that's going to help. But it seems that they're concentrating on testosterone perhaps too much sometimes or, or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, far too often you see ads for adventure bikes where the bike's in the air or crossed up sideways or whatever. Most people don't ride like that. I know people that can ride the big GSs and they are just magnificent to watch. Some of the GS giants and so on in, in the United States, when you watch these guys on the bikes and they're just making these bikes sing and dance and I, I just, I'm absolute yeah. total awe of these people. I will never have that level of talent. Um, I couldn't make yeah. a bike do that. And I don't know, maybe it's a little bit daunting because I never will be able well, to much as I would love to. That's that's very true, Sam. I, I, I did a test uh, on the, the new triumphs for the magazine and um, the, the photographer said, okay, let's go out and do some hero shots. And I'm thinking... No, what we do is you get these bikes and these bikes are built to ride long distances and that's what people are going to do these things. They're not going to go crossed up sideways, um, you know, through mud and stuff all the time. That's not what it's all about. Uh, you know, okay, I, I get it, you know, um, sex sells, hero shot sell, all that sort of stuff, but really maybe we have to, maybe they should mature a little bit. What do most people use their big, their big um, enduro bikes for? Um, they use them for mile munching, um, for a, a riding platform with a magnificent view, but also the flexibility to do something a little bit more complicated if they get to somewhere and they think, oh, that looks interesting down that dirt road. Let's go and have a look. Um, but are they yeah. going to be jumping over logs and you know all of this sort of stuff? Well, actually, probably not. Yeah. You know, the thing yeah, is, that's though, okay. when it comes to marketing, you you don't necessarily market something as it's meant to be used. I mean, take a look at any one of these bikes that we're sort of referring to. Most of them are not designed to do the things that they're, at least it's purported that they can do and that people will do with them because you can end up destroying yeah. them in very short order. Um, you know, if, if you want to take a bike and jump it in the dirt, why would you take a six or 700 pound bike and, and do it when you can go get a really lightweight a dirt bike that's actually meant for that and will handle completely different and, and you'll be a superstar on it. So it, it's, it's the marketing thing. I mean, as, as ridiculous as it sounds, and I don't think it's going to change. I think that they want to build an image to which people aspire to. In other words, somebody buys their, their bike because it reminds them of that round the world trip. It reminds them of the uh, crossed up uh, burning through the dirt. Um, it, you know, yeah. it reminds them of someone they saw or some ad they've seen of some extreme thing. It doesn't mean they're going to do it. They're, they're happy, you know, maybe they, you know, he or she rides it to work and back and it goes to get some groceries or, or something like that. But they like the idea that it's sort of connected, you know, that has that pedigree, I guess. That's Absolutely, romance is wonderful, it isn't it? 
Yeah. And I, I think about, yeah. um, you know, my bike, my R80GS and, and heading off down through Africa on this and an 800cc bike um, with that amount of experience was a huge motorcycle. Um, and I made a lot of mistakes on it. And yes, I did take off on it involuntarily. It wasn't planned. But because the bike <laughs> was designed to deal with that sort of stuff, it did. It coped with it. And maybe that's part of what's in people's minds. So maybe I'm arguing against myself here. Maybe the point is that you're on a bike that you know is going to help you to deal with the unexpected. The bike should be better than you are is the important mm -hmm. thing. I think that's it what I'm is, trying to get. It? I mean, yeah. this is my uh, case almost. anyway. Oh, yes. <laughs> they'll, they'll do things that you don't know they can do. Yeah. As um, I'm sure I, I mentioned to you guys before, I used to work in the tourism industry. We, we did that for about 20 years. And um, you'll learn a lot of things because it was all, all wilderness trips. So we're taking people out canoeing, kayaking, hiking, those sorts of things. And you learn a lot about things that work and things that don't work. You know, there's a lot of commercial things out there that, that, that companies will sell that are meant for a, a, a particular use that just don't seem to cut it when you get it in reality. And we've all found this with motorcycles, with everything in life. And then sometimes there's those, those things that people do where they show you, you know, they'll start a fire with a Dorito or something, you know, because Doritos are so oily and so easy to light. So I mean, a pack of Doritos is a great fire starter. You can crunch it up and pour it in and, and light it up. Those little things, that's what I would consider an adventure hack. You guys have adventure hacks. You, you must have, you've developed some things over the years that you've, you've found work and people sort of shake their head when they look at it and think, I can't believe you do that. Yeah, well, um, I, I can give you one. Um, on this recent trip, one of our guys carries a shovel. Now, a shovel can be very handy for burying... Um, Thank you. ...other th things that, you know... Thank you. Yeah, you, you know what I mean? They get the drift. Um, but a clean shovel could also be used to um, as, as a, a pan to, to put a stake on over a fire. The same shovel? <laughs> <laughs> See, this is where Why the story just falls this, down, This is the conversation we had. Do you use the same shovel, Luke? It's <laughs> a bit of a problem. Well, I guess uh, if you burnt it. <laughs> I'm just amazed that there's any question mark in your minds about this. <laughs> you mean you think it's perfectly sensible to dig a hole for your crap and then fry your steak on the same shovel? I mean, are all Canadians as blunt as you? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> He's just going to use the shovel on the dirt. Jim, just the dirt. Exactly. Well, That's all. I, I know, but it's it's the proximity thing. I mean, I mean, you know, this is a society that puts on rubber gloves to do the most mundane things, and and now we're talking about digging a hole, pooping in it, and then pouring the dirt over, but not touching. We're not going to touch. We're not. Nope. <laughs> and then we're going to fry a steak on this puppy. I, I mean, that close only matters in horseshoes and hand grenades. <laughs> There's an important type of, of shovel to get for this, and it has to be one of the ones that has the lip where you would put the weight of your foot to dig down into the ground. And the reason that that's important is because if you try and fry an egg on your shit shovel and you haven't got one of those, the egg will roll off the side. Oh, God. <laughs> I like that, Sam. I like that. <laughs> wow. Now, Jim, there will be a little bit of noise in the background now because we've got visitors have come into the kitchen. So okay. just chat amongst yourselves just, if I disappear. Just tell them to, to gather around, just sit around, and they can just watch you guys talk. <laughs> yes, Lucky <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it's uh, – I'm just trying to think of what other hacks, you, you know. We, we've um, – a couple of us have taken those chairs, those Helinox chairs. They're pretty good. And uh, one of the guys had a, 
uh, a little stool and he saw how uncomfortable that was compared to the Halilox chairs. Yeah, and then you use the panniers off the motorbike to sit on. We did that too. Just yeah. take them off and sit on them. I do that. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of mine uh, just re- he's does he's retired and he just goes off into the woods for days at a time on his bike and he recently bought a Helinox chair and said it has transformed my life. It tends yeah. to be a little dramatic, but he just can't believe how much of a difference that makes because he used to get yeah. off the bike and he'd sit at you know maybe a picnic bench or a rock or a log and. It just wasn't that comfortable, and he'd, never, he'd sit there, and he'd sit there for a couple minutes and squirm around. He says, now, I sit, pull up my chair, I sit back in that, and I relax, and I can read a book and watch the birds. It just yeah. chill. Well, this fits in perfectly with what we were talking about earlier on, doesn't it? Um, as you get older, something like that's really important. Yeah, yeah. it makes a huge exactly. point. Yeah. Well, well, and the other thing is... You know, expat beds, when we were using them camping mm-hmm. and hand-blowing them up is can be a bit of a pain and uh, as you get older. And you just go and buy one of those little 12-volt blowers. Use yeah. that and make sure – but make sure it, it, it reverses so you can suck the air out as well. It makes life so much easier. I, I have a friend that bought an inflatable kayak and he's going to take it on him, take it with with him on the bike and go paddling in different spots. So he decided to inflate it using the exhaust from his KLR, um, and he and he hooked a hose up to it, and and it worked great. It was inflating it and inflated it right up, and then the sides started to bulge out of it because the KLR exhaust is quite hot. <laughs> it's <just> riveting, you know. <laughs> so that's one of those hacks yeah. that seems like a good idea in theory, but in reality, well, you might want to keep the revs down, I guess. Some fiendishly cunning plans are a bit too fiendish, aren't they? <laughs> I'll give you one that, that I learned very early on that, that works extremely well. You see a lot of people with their gear packed with a plastic bag on the outside of their gear. That is completely backwards because it's the first thing that's going to get punctured. What you do if you have, a, if you have just a, a regular stuff sack and you have something inside you want to keep dry, take the thing out. Put a garbage bag or two inside your stuff sack. Then stuff whatever it is back inside the innermost garbage bag. Squish the air out, twist the neck up, and flop it down or tie a knot in it, however you want to do it. Same thing to the second one. Now you've got this this, um, pr- this waterproof layer on the inside protected by your outside layer. And I think a lot of people get that backwards when they put their garbage bags over the outside of their gear. Yeah, so often you see um, like people even put garbage bags over their riding boots because the boots aren't waterproof. Well, yeah, but it's as soon as you put your foot down or yeah, skid slightly, it's got a hole in it. Mm-hmm. So put your foot into the bag, then put your boot and bag into your boots. Works much better. Right. Yep. On the bag stuffing um, concept, um, don't use ordinary garbage bags. Get hold of garden um, waste bags because they're that much tougher. Yeah. And yeah. so they'll deal with the pushing in and out of, of the contents of the bag for that much longer. Yeah, that's true. And we, that's what we used to use is heavy-duty bags. Um, they were yep. like a six mil plastic, very heavy. But I'm just thinking everybody can find a garbage bag. You can always find that. So at the very least, that works. And and a double garbage bag will do for a multi-day trip, no problem at all, if you're careful. If you, when you're stuffing it, if you're careful not to, to poke your fingers into it. But um, yeah, heavier the bag, the better it is. Like yeah, what about, what about um, the old hockey strap bungee cords? They have multiple purpose use, including as uh, our friend on our travels used it to dry his underwear as we're riding along. And that um, worked really well until we pointed out that, that his boxer shorts were actually hanging over the exhaust pipe so he could have mon- carbon monoxide poisoning of the nether regions. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not a fan of bungee cords. Um, bungee cords have a tendency to, to snap off, and uh, I just I, I'm not a fan of them. But but I know a lot of people like them. A lot of people use them for different things. I right. like they're, they're, good. Is, they're cheap. They're cheap, and, mm. and people Rock do straps. use them a lot. I, I don't personally. I don't use them either, but uh, a lot of people do. Those hooks are dangerous, though, and oh, yeah. um, the rubber and bungee cords um, degrades with UV and all that sort of stuff. But I'm a great fan of luggage straps. I've got green chili ones on on yeah. the F800 that I've just been um, doing in, in the um, setting up in the states, and they've been great. Um, I use old BMW um, packing straps in the UK for most of what I've got, and I hold my panniers on with them. Now I don't need them to hold the panniers on, but it's a great place to carry the straps because then I've got straps handy um, if I want to strap a little extra something on. I've just done some shopping. Um, they're handy for strapping down on ferries um, if the ferry straps aren't particularly good or the ratchets are knackered on them um, they're a great washing line on or off the bike as um, Brian's just mentioned or between trees or in the hotel rooms and one of the things that works really nicely in hotel rooms is where you've got the door to the bathroom you put the ratchet bit um, down the crack um, and that's one of your fixing points across then to a light fitting or whatever um, so they work really nicely for that mm. yeah, I'm a huge fan yeah, of those yeah yeah Yep. You've got to be. You've got to be a little careful, though. I actually pulled a light fitting out of a wall with one of those. Uh, in a <laughs> <hotel>. <laughs> yeah. The other one is if you're taking the front wheel off the bike and you leave the bike with the front wheel in the air, tie yeah. the uh, center stand to the frame or to the front yeah. fork so that uh, right. if the bike gets rocked a little bit, it won't crash off the center stand. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Really, yeah. really hard to pick up 1200 GS up without the front wheel on it. Yep. Now, now I have one that sort of goes against what a lot of people are going to say. I know people love their zap straps, zip ties, whatever you want to call them, the the plastic um, uh, disposable zip ties that, that people put on to fix things with. I'm not a big fan of zip ties. Um, I know they have their uses every now and then. But I think if you learn to tie knots and carry some thin starter rope cord that you find for small engines, or some people call it parachute cord, it's very high strength cord, has a bit of a stretch to it. Learn to tie some knots and you will do so much more with that cord than what you will ever do with the zip ties or, or zap straps. So I tend to carry um, pieces of that cord, whether it's for tying up tarp, fixing something, repairing something. Uh, I find cord to be really, really handy and it has to be good quality. Like I say, the starter style cord, not um, that cheap stuff you buy at the camping store that's a camping cord. Yeah. Um, I would have. So I'll have to sit in front of the television learning how to tie knots then, will I? (laughs) Hang on, what did you say, Grant? I think I I, I I sense a challenge doing more with cord than with zip ties. Mm. However, I just wanted to comment on (laughs) zip ties. There are two kinds of zip ties, and most people don't realize this. Some are UV resistant, some are designed for indoor use only, like electrical wiring in a house. So if you get the type that are not UV resistant, they will fail on your motorcycle in the mm. sun very quickly. They become very brittle very fast. And there's some stainless steel ones which work great for doing something like with exhaust or something if you, if you don't have some mechanics wire with you. Yeah. Well, way back when, in the early days of motorcycling, the standard method, instead of a zip tie, because they didn't exist, was a a metal sort of zip tie that you fed through a little hole on the end of it and bent it backwards. And that did the same job. And they were reusable for years, usually uh, wrapped with a bit of plastic because of the way they come from the factory. Like on a CV joint, that style, you mean? No, no. Just, um, well, think of a strip of metal. And it's got a little bit of a hole in one end that the strip of metal can fold back into and around. Hmm. 
don't know if I explained that very well, but basically it's a, think of it as a zip tie, but metal. Right. Because I think you said the same thing twice there, just slower the second time and it didn't work for me. (laughs) (laughs) I tried. I couldn't think of another way to phrase it. Anyway, there, if you can come upon any of them, I still have a couple that I still use in my kit. Um, They're great. Very strong. It's worth hunting around also for reusable um, cable ties. They're around. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've just got a, um, a a more accessible clip that you just stick the end of a pen knife in and you can open them up again. And um, they're great. They go on forever. They cost a little bit more. But, hey, you're not carrying loads around and just keep using them. Grant, what kind of things do you think a zip tie can do that a, a, a cord couldn't do? They're stronger. No, they won't be stronger. <laughs> I mean, it, I guess it depends because you can get some really beefy zip ties. I know I've got some of those too, that some really big ones that, um, that are probably a dollar a piece or something that they're huge. Yes. So, okay. So, exactly. so there's those ones that I don't know. They may be or may not be stronger than the cord. Um, the cord is very, very strong. Right. I, don't, I don't know what the breaking strength is. Yeah. I don't know. I think it just think it would be an interesting challenge. I'm not sure either way would win. And I tend to come down on the rope side myself as an ex sailor. Mm. So there's lots you can do. But I think I think you need to have both in your kit. I think that's the, that's the important thing. Yeah, that's probably uh, wise. Yeah, I always do have a, a small, probably ten feet of cord in my kit. That's just part of the automatic. You know, you're just going to need it. Who knows when? Um, the other one that's really useful is bits of inner tubing. Um, take an old inner tube, uh, cut off some strips, half an inch wide, an inch wide, two inches wide, and you got various strengths of elastic bands to cut, to uh, hold things together with. I've got one on my tire patching kit. I was just using it the other day at a demo and I realized, and I said to the guys, you know, this inner tube that I'm using here to hold this kit together is 20 years old and it's still fine. Wow. Now that would degrade in the sun very fast, wouldn't it? In the sun, it might degrade, but it's in my kit. Hmm. It never sees the sun and tires do all right for several years, five, six years at least. Well, that's better so, than any elastic you'll get. You won't get oh, elastic yeah, last 20 better. years. Yeah. Talk to Peter Forward, who's a huge fan of bits of old inner tubing. He's got, he says he gets ones off bicycles for little ones, and he gets ones off 20-inch front wheels for medium ones, big fat rear tires for, for bigger ones, and he gets car tires and truck tires and carries bits of it, all of them, and he uses it for everything. Mm. I've seen it hold together bits of broken frames. It's amazing, easy, wonderful stuff. Easy to store, too. Yeah. Yeah, they don't take up a lot of space. You always stuff them in a corner somewhere. Yeah, I don't. I don't do that. I don't carry those. I got to start doing that. I got to cut some of that up. Yeah, they're great. It's um, they're also well used. Um, for um, for example, you want to put an extra guy line on your tent, um, then you've got that expansion rubber, so uh-huh, that you're not right. putting stress tight on the tent. Right. Yeah. Um, and and does anybody know why you do that? Like you just mentioned, don't put the stress on the tent. The, that that little bungee portion in the in the cord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you get the gust of wind, instead of it tearing it, there's some energy absorption there. So, so when yep. you tie up, same thing with tarps, if you can do it, it's a great way to do it, um, to put some sort of elastic in there so that when you get that gust of wind, instead of it breaking because the, you've, you've exceeded the shear strength of the, of the fabric and the, usually the grommet where it goes through, um, instead of that, you get a bit of energy absorption and then the rebound in there. And it's usually enough or it can be enough to, to save it, tent included. I'm really interested to see how many tents nowadays are not made um, with the rubber on. Um, 15 years ago, they pretty much all had um, the rubber expansions on. Do you notice that? Yeah, no. you don't see it much. That may be more something you see in the UK, because certainly here in North America, 
Um, I was selling tents in a camping store 30, 40 years ago. must be 40 years ago now. And the rubber expansion straps, new. No. You see it on occasional big tents, like the uh, the big commercial canvassy tents, but uh, small camping tents, nope. Yeah, I don't think I've no, seen it on small tents at all, or tarps for that matter. Matter of fact, most of the tarps nowadays don't even come with ropes. That's something you do on your own. They'll just have the grommets in there. But um, no, I haven't seen any, which you're right, Sam. It should be on, on you know every little spot for your tie. Well, I've got a series of hacks here, all to do with food, which is, of course, something that's very close to my heart, where my stomach is. I like Sorry, this. I couldn't resist that. Okay, so um, don't carry a knife, fork, and spoon. Um, just carry a spoon because you don't need a fork. A spoon will do exactly what a fork's going to do. Um, and carry your, um, your multi-tool. Uh, multi-tools inevitably have two blades. You have one blade for cutting pretty much anything, and the other blade is always what you use for preparing food. Hang on, hang on. Are you just going to run through this list? You're not going to let us comment? Because I hate no, no, the no, spoon no. I'm, one. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on one subject well, this here. this is just, one. Okay, all right. Go, this continue is just then. one. This is just one. Okay. So um, that cuts down on the amount of space that you're taking up. It cuts down on the amount of weight that you're carrying. It cuts down on the amount of financial investment because you're going to carry a multi-tool probably of one sort anyway, um, you know, Swiss Army knife or um, Leatherman or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it works very nicely for, for many reasons. There we are. Go on, have your say because okay, I know you okay. hate this. <laughs> the spoon thing always gets me. Okay, so bulk. So what you do is you have a spoon and a fork that nest. They're very common. Um, wait, the fork won't take up much. Clip your nails before you go on a trip and you've, you've offset the, the weight of your, um, of your fork. Stop exaggerating, Jim. <laughs> You're talking a Teflon fork, right? Sure. <laughs> or a nylon fork. And finance. How much is a fork going to cost you? Go to the thrift store and get a fork. Yeah, but then you're buying yourself a heavy fork. Oh, okay. You got me there. Cut the handle off. <laughs> You're talking like a friend of um, Grant and mine's in the UK now because he cuts the handles off just about everything. I did actually yep. do that with my toothbrush for the last trip across the state. It's interesting experience brushing your teeth with only an inch of handle. That's what makes me laugh is it because that handle? toothbrush one, that toothbrush one I've heard so much when it comes to backpacking, cut your handle off your toothbrush. And it's always just, I've thought, I, I just can't imagine it. I really can't. No. It's well, very well, entertaining, especially when you've got a beard. On this last gives trip, me a bad I took, time I took a little small toothbrush which uh, you got um on the uh, plane mm-hmm. they actually fold yeah. inside yeah so they're, they're um uh, they've got a, a plastic case on the outside and they fold in half and then you you turn it around and you've got a long handle but it also protects the brushes fantastic you took it because it was free on the plane yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but it was great for camping fantastic yeah. mm-hmm yeah, Susan complains about me telling her to cut the handle off her toothbrush, but I didn't tell her to cut it down to one inch. I was just watching her brush her teeth, and there was three inches of handle sticking out. She uh, holds it real close, or chokes the bat, as they say in baseball. So there was a wasted, whole lot of wasted handle there. So cut the Quite excess right, off. Exactly. What are you carrying it for? No, it's re- when she's doing her uh, four easy steps talk on what do you need to know to go around the world. That's one of the things she says. Grant made me cut the handle off my toothbrush. Yep. You, well, sometimes, you know, you do every little bit and it's still way too heavy. But yeah, that's probably because you're carrying too many zip ties. That could be. That could be. Okay, Sam, you have more on your list. Okay. Okay, I do, I do. Um, the next one is uh, don't waste money buying um, aluminium or stainless steel drinking water bottles because um, you don't need them. 
you can use the money that you save from spending on those to put gas in your fuel tank. Why don't you need them? Well, you can always find empty Coke bottles, you know, the small ones. Um, use those instead. If you get a hole in one of those, well, you'll replace it with something that somebody else has discarded because they're not recycling or whatever. So recycle it yourself. The only thing I will say is always have one aluminium or stainless steel drinking water bottle. And the reason for that is because this doubles up as a hot water bottle when you're traveling and it's cold. Mm. The, the, the only thing I would add with that is that what, what I found is I used to use um, Coke bottles because I found them incredibly durable. I remember one summer I, I was using it on canoe tripping and I kicked it everywhere and beat it to try and see how much it would take. It never, ever died. It never gave yeah, up. As they come forever. Right. But the, the problem with them are, with all those bottles, is that when you let them sit in the sun, they warm up very quickly. They become hot water and they take forever to cool, even if you put them in the, in the water, uh, cold water. But with the stainless steel one, you can put your water in there and it will stay cold. You leave it right in the sun and it stays cold. So that's the one advantage. I'm not talking insulated. I'm talking just stainless steel because there's you have a greenhouse effect there with your bottles. So, so other than that, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I agree. See, this is, you've just taught me something. This is perfect. You know, mm -hmm. I'm all right. I may be from Africa, but I'm a Brit um, and we drink a lot of tea. So this is absolutely fantastic. It's saving me fuel when I'm boiling the kettle to make the next <laughs> cup of tea because oh. it's already warmed up. Nice one, Jim. Thank That's you, mate. true. <laughs> but you might want a cold <laughs> drink of water. Oh, well, you know that I've got another plan for that, don't you? I've talked about this before. Shall I, shall I talk about it again? I think you need to, yeah. Okay. So... Um, I'm a great fan of um, tank panniers, so bags that hang on either side of, of your petrol tank. And the reason for that is because if you're carrying a fair amount of weight on the back of your motorcycle, having the capacity to carry some weight up front helps balance out that weight on the back. So I use my tank panniers to carry my water supply, my spare oils, those sorts of things. Um, now, for my UK bike, um, it's really weird, weird saying this. For, for Libby, I've got canvas knapsacks. And um, in the States, I've got waterproof Lomo um, um, tank panniers. And what I'm doing in the States is um, I've just got myself some canvas covers to go on my water bottles. They hang on the front of the, water, um, the Lomo bags. And the water bottles, my Coke recycled bottles, have a tiny hole in the neck. So as I'm riding, the water slopping around inside, this tiny little hole dribbles some water down into the canvas. And that canvas, um, the water evaporates from that in the slipstream of the bike as I'm riding, even when it's hot. And that always gives me a cool drink. It's such a simple thing to do, and it works amazingly well. I mean, Brian will have seen these um, all over the place in Australia, for example. They get, you know, sack bags on the front of utes and things like that. And that's yeah. how people... Yeah, the cool, cool water bags we used to use them out on the farm all the time, just hang them on the on the front of the tractor, um, and you always had cool water. Tasted a little bit hessian-y, but it was okay. Yeah, yeah. I remember those now, well, but I, you don't see them I, much anymore. They're hard to No, you like. don't. No, for some reason, plastic has taken over, which I disagree with. There's so much yeah, damn totally. plastic in the world, to be quite honest with you. Oh, um, speaking of Sam's we, reusing the uh, plastic bottles, Theoretically, and this is a health thing, theoretically, you shouldn't be reusing those bottles because they start to leach all the, the right. nasty chemical that's in the plastic into the water. That's true. That is that's true. it. Go and shoot my... my... Sorry. No, 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 listen, one of the conversations we had around the campfire, and this involves um, a rather personal matter, when you're camping and you're getting older, you need to get up in the middle of the night to 
and go and relieve yourself. And then we were trying to think of what you can take on the bike so that you can use that in your tent so you don't have to get out into the cold. Has anyone got any ideas? Yep. Mm-hmm. Gatorade bottles. Yeah, I was going to say water Gatorade, bottle. Gatorade bottles. Perfect. Absolutely are big, perfect. Are they big enough? Perfect. Right. Okay. I'll remember that. So you take Gatorade a green bottle. Gatorated bottle that you use no. for urine and then you take a red one that you use for your drink. Right. That way it's easy to keep track. Yeah. Just watch the colors, yes. <laughs> <laughs> never never buy the lemon lime flavor. Bad. <laughs> I'll pass that on, boys. That's a, two good tips, Sam. I, I like those and, and the weight distribution and the, the cold water. Do you have more on your list? Oh, I do. Let's hear um, it. Now, this is something that a friend uses. Um, he, uh, most people will put a headlight grill um, over their headlights um, because if they're going to be riding off-road, other bikes, other vehicles will throw small stones up. Um, he doesn't have one that he's bought from a manufacturer at um, an exorbitant price. What he's got is he's got one that he's bought from a cheapo type camping shop. It's one that's used for making toast. So he folds it flat and he just has that clipped over his headlight. So when he wants to make toast or he wants to barbecue a steak or anything else like that, this thing just clips off and it does it in seconds. And there we go. He's got his barbecue grill. Love it. And the headlight grill. It's cool, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I love this double-use rule. It's it's just fantastic, isn't it? It's like the shovel. Yeah, well, of course it is. Yeah. And you see, oh, you yeah. all you all like the double-use rule, except Brian's shovel story. I I, I just <laughs> you know thought we should talk about it. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I I don't know where I sit <laughs> on that uh, topic. Ready for the next one? Ready. Okay. Ten pegs. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for years I would discard the aluminium tent pegs that you get with tents because most of them bend as soon as you use them. And I tend to either carry a few six-inch nails, just four for the really rocky ground, or I'll carry the star, the the sort of triangle-shaped ones because they're so much tougher and also they work so much better when um, you're camping in soft ground like sand or, you know, lots of mulch around. Um, But I've gone back to carrying a couple of uh, stainless steel, ordinary type tent pegs because they're absolutely fantastic shish kebab skewers as well as tent pegs. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I, I look like I having to replace all my tent pegs because they all uh, Yuri Geller's been at them all because of the <laughs> the gibber planes out here that have bent them all. Um, but I do take a small little hammer with me to straighten things out, yeah. and um, that's that's been quite handy. But Luke, one of our mates, camped on top of um, the the Great Australian Bite on those cliffs there. He said it was magnificent. The the stars are out. It was just great until it got cold. You had to put the fly on the tent <laughs> and put your socks on, I think, and you mate. You had to put socks on as well. Too bloody cold to have three beers. Brian, you're carrying a hammer for your tent pegs. Are you sawing your toothbrush handle off as well? <laughs> because if you put the toothbrush on the end of the hammer, you've got a double-use tool there. <laughs> this is where you need your, your knot tying skills so that you can actually have an extended toothbrush handle. What a great idea, Jim. I like this. Everyone use the bloody hammer. <laughs> Everyone yeah. use the- <laughs> I mean, this, is, this next one isn't exactly a hack, um, but it is something that kind of works. Um, wherever I go, I tend to buy the makings to make muesli. Too many manufacturers put loads and loads of sugar in their mueslis, and I can't be doing with that. So I make my own. It's pretty easy to get hold of the ingredients. 
and Ziploc bags. I, I get nice quality ones so that I can reuse them. And I'll just do, you know, I'll portion the, the, the homemade muesli out into the Ziploc bags. And the beauty of that is you can pack them in and all those little nooks and crannies in between other stuff that are less, um, you know, less slotting in jigsaw puzzle wise. So they fill all of those little gaps. But also it means that if one of them happens to get a hole in, then the whole thing's not going to get damp inside or go off. Whereas if you had all of your muesli in one bag, then it's one great big lump of weight in one place. And of course, the whole lot will go off. So by spreading out the weight, and it just means that, you know, even if you've got really naff weather, you're just grabbing one of those little bags to take into your tent at night time. Um, and it's just there ready to use in the morning. So I guess I kind of like it because it's a nice lazy thing to do as well as being really practical I've, Jim I've got one last one can I give you this one and then I'm going to shut up and let everybody else talk because I rattled for ages okay go ahead um, now this is not me this is a friend I've got a friend who firmly is a believer of the two uses rule he carries a frying pan because he says it's a multi-purpose pan you can cook all sorts of stuff in it but he also uses it as his um, kickstand puck when he's camping in really soggy ground. Mm. I, I do no, like that. I don't. That's it. You don't like that? No. Because you're worried about having to cook while you're using a kickstand puck? Well, there's that for sure. And the other is it's just way too awkward. I mean, put a decent foot on the side stand anyway and job done. That foot that you just put on your side stand outweighed the part you cut off your toothbrush. Yes, I know I did. <laughs> But I drilled holes in it, so it was lighter. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> Problem solved then. Well, that, that's yeah, interesting, the frying pan thing. But I, I don't know. It might. I have a tendency yeah. to agree with Grant. I think it's a little extreme. Yeah, I know. I agree. I mean, he, he does it. It works. But um, let's put it this way. He doesn't have the flattest bottom to his frying pan anymore. Yeah, just that. <laughs> so now, Sam, you can admit it was you and you're not going to take his frying pan with you again. No, 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 no. I would never, ever treat my frying pan like that. It took me long enough to, for me to, to, to carry one as it is. She always looks at it and says, what do you want to carry that for? I said, yeah, but, you know, a full English breakfast fry up, which we almost never do. But right. I like exactly. it. So anyone else? Well, we don't use plates. We just use bowls. That's it. You yep. don't need a plate. Yeah, that's just, a good idea. We have a couple of plastic bowls that nest and a frying pan that sort of, or I shouldn't say a frying pan, what I say, a pot that goes, that they fit inside just nicely and a frying pan for a lid, job done. That's all the cooking utensils we need with a couple of plastic cups. Mm -hmm. You just don't need that much. I mean, if you're, if you're going to live out there for months on end and you're going to cook every meal every day, you might want to expand your kit. But we started off with a full-on super-duper whiz-bang kit that was just awesome. But we realized after a fairly short period, we just don't use it and we don't need it. You know, go light, keep it simple, um, and it's all replaceable. All our stuff that we use in that kit now is scrounged up in a plastic shop or wherever, or not even camping stuff. It's all lightweight, disposable. Yeah, yeah, no, that's good. a good idea. Oh, you know, what you Grant was saying, there is the rule: if you don't use it, it can't go on the next trip. Yep. Mm, yeah, that's a really. Good Apart one. from the tire pliers, which obviously break that rule because they live in the bottom of my bloody pannier every trip, and they've never been used. Well, I could tell you, you don't need to carry them anymore. There is better and much, oh. much, much lighter. Thank you, Grant. No, we oh. never need to know. <laughs> no. Motion Pro bead breakers. Mm. They work great and they're alloy. They weigh nothing. They are very cool. Yeah, I've done dozens and dozens of tires with them 
They always work. They're not as good in function as the tire pliers. The tire pliers are brilliant, but the weight is ridiculous. And the Motion Pro um, Bead Pro breakers will do the job with with a little bit of patience and take your time. Uh, it's it's well, just it really a different weight staggering. Good. Because we never use them anyway, but at least they're light. They'd be lighter in my pannier than tire pliers. Thanks, Grant. Yep. They're, they're literally a few ounces versus a few pounds. Sorry, Brian. I, I was going to mention, going back to the food thing that the Sam was talking about, is the Ziploc bags. So one great thing about Ziploc bags over containers, because a lot of people like containers, for, and you know, there's, there's certainly arguments for that. But how I feel about it is that with a Ziploc bag, you, you can always adjust it to the size of the whatever it is you have inside. Whereas if you have a hard container, even if it's for spices, the hard container stays that size when you have a tiny bit of spice in the bottom where the Ziplocs, you know, they just squeeze right down. So I, I like that. And also, uh, yep. you don't have to use Ziplocs. You can use freezer bags, freezer bags with yep. a good twist on it and a, and a twist tie or a knot or however you want to do it or an elastic band. Those work really well as well. Um, and they're sometimes better because Ziplocs can fail you. And one other little thing that I found over the years is you have to, in my mind, remove all the air from the Ziploc. So you get the, you, you develop the method of rolling Ziploc from the bottom to the top, then closing it. That way you don't have it burst open when you drop your bag on your soft lug or drop your bike on your soft luggage or something else moves and crunches and pops yep. out. And next thing you know, you have yep. everything everywhere. Yep. Yep. But they're also good for not just food, but um, we've used them when we've been hiding money in different places. You put your money in a Ziploc bag, and then if you get horribly wet, it doesn't uh, it doesn't destroy your currency. Mm. In some countries good where point. the currency doesn't survive water so well, and they're also good for separating um, the tiny little ones, separating cables. If you've got a cable, a different cable to charge your phone and your camera, say, for instance. You can, you know, mark them up, and and then, as you say, Jim, you can secrete them in little spots in the, in the pannier where, you know, they're not really taking up a lot of room. They just fit inside things, and. Yep. I'm yep, a huge definitely. fan of zip, zip tie ziploc bags too. The heavy duty freezer bags are the ones that I like. Yeah. Same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can also get really small ones. If you go into some plastic stores, you'll see they, they got ones that are like an inch and a half across by two inches or something. Those are perfect for spices, and they're really tiny and incredibly cheap, like half a cent a piece. It's amazing. Really good for small stuff. And, and they have the opposite too. The the really large ones now because I have Ooh. I bought a couple of those. They're kind of expensive, but I, I bought a couple of those as liners for my uh, my soft bags. So I put everything into them. They don't have to be waterproof. I don't even close them because they're they're inside the waterproof bags. But they are an extra waterproofing if as long as they last. They don't last all that long as far as having no holes. But they're really easy to grab a hold of and pull everything out in one shot. So I don't mm-hmm. have to take the bags off. I just pull the ba- inner bag out Ooh. and uh, put it down on the ground and start looking for what it is I'm after. And they're and they're clear oh, nice. so I can see in them. Yeah, and that's that's one of the keys, isn't it? The fact that they're clear, you can see what's inside them. Yeah. Yep. But to go with that, the other method that we've used, well, I've used for camping for a long, 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 long time, and we used on our trip, was everything in our panniers is in a stuff sack, colored mm-hmm. stuff sack. Like, you open the lid, and there's the purple stuff sack. Right, I'm going into the bushes for a few minutes. Be right back. That's the purple bag. Um, and Susan's kid is purple, my, or purple, what am I saying? It's mauve. I've got to be careful here. Get the right color. It's mauve. Um, my kid is black and my clothing bag is blue. Her clothing kit is green and so forth. You know, we all, we know what every color bag is. And I can open up the pannier, reach in, grab several strings on the stuff sacks and pull it all out and 
we're all set. Toss that bag out in the ground and we're set. And nothing is loose. Everything's got a bag. So it makes it a lot easier to pack. And the secret with using the stuff sack method is the stuff sack should always be too big for whatever you're putting in it. That means you can make it nice and round. You can make it short. You can make it fat. You can squish it. doesn't matter. You can make it fit into whatever shape happens to be available for it as you're packing. So it works yep. really well. Smart. One of the best packers I've ever seen is Carol Ann Duval. I'll bet. She oh, yes. has a bag for everything. Everything has its little place. It's uh, it's a very intricate um, exercise to watch her pack the top box um, after they've camped for a night, but it is extraordinary. It, their bike is a little like the TARDIS mm-hmm. in the amount of stuff they carry, and I'm sure it's because of the way she really thinks everything through and everything's kept neat and tidy and, and in its little posse. It's, uh, it's um, a, an art work, really. Have you learned something from it? No, not at all, but oh. I, you know, I appreciate <laughs> the talent in others, Brian. I just <laughs> myself. Oh, man. It sounds like things yeah. are really getting moving there. Well, we've just served breakfast for five while we've been talking. No so. way. <laughs> it hasn't been a very good breakfast. I haven't done scrambled eggs and bacon, but we've had cereal and toast and juice and stuff while you've, we've been chatting around in the background. Well, I would have had no nice. idea. Yeah. Uh, and the cat's crying now, so. Mm. Oh, what do you I think you guys have done an awesome job with that. You just throw the cat outside? Is that what you do? Yep. It just, just went out there, yeah. <laughs> but it's it still the the, uh, the sun's come up. Well, I should rephrase that. It's light here now, and it's quite foggy, and it's a very big frost. Everything's white. It's quite um, quite pretty, but still a little on the chilly side. Still under zero this morning. Wow, sounds wow. nice. And the boys are gearing up to head off into town a bit earlier than me, and I'll catch up with them later. Right. So, yeah. any, anyone else with any any more adventure hacks of the stuff we're talking about? I'm hacked out. As long as you're not hacked off. Nope. Uh, so um, a, a, fellow named, a fellow named Jay Sheets uh, <laughs> sent in a, a question. And, and I think this is really good because he was asking about um, borrowing others' bikes um, just to try a different Ooh. bike. Um, and he wondered what the thoughts were from everybody. He says, um, you know, some people will and some people won't. But he's wondering their opinions either way. You know, some people do that. I know, Sam, you've done that. I think, Grant, you, you've probably done that tons of times. Mm-hmm. Go somewhere and borrow a bike. How do you guys feel about that? And, Sam, maybe I'll start with you because do you feel any different about it now? So, um, because I, I know you had – I don't want to bring it up. Did I just I just did bring it up, didn't I? You, you did. <laughs> you did. Just let's pretend you I did. didn't. But, if you, you know, do you feel any different? Well, look, before – I mean, I had a real battle about borrowing other people's equipment – whether it's a power drill or a Kango or a motorcycle. I have a real problem with it because my attitude is if I break it, then I have to replace it. That's, you know, it's, uh, and with a motorcycle, it's somebody's pride and joy. Um, It may be one of many and it may have no real sentimental attachment for them, but it's got value. And I, I had a real problem with it. And to begin with, when I was doing, um, when I started doing the trips in the States, people were just amazing. They lent me their bikes. And how fantastic is that? But I was riding the bikes, dreading the fact that I might drop it because this was somebody's pride and joy. And I was inevitably riding bikes that there's no way I could afford to buy. And so if I did damage it, I was going to be in real stir. Um, 
because I mean, I, I didn't realise in the states, for example, that the insurance situation isn't the same as in the UK. Um, in the UK, when you insure a motorcycle, it's not only the value of the motorcycle, but it's all of the modifications and it's all the accessories that you put on it, and that is the lump sum that you insure. Well, I found out in the United States that it doesn't tend to be that way. You can insure the motorcycle, but for all of the other things, you have to take out a separate insurance policy. So, of course, I'm asking, um, is the bike fully insured Well, and everything on it? And, well, yeah, it is. Well, I'm riding bikes and I'm not going down dirt roads because I'm thinking, yeah, but, you know, this is somebody else's bike and if I drop it, etc. And so I had a real problem with borrowing people's bikes, but I was so grateful to them for lending me their bikes. And then, of course, the world's worst possible thing happened that you've just alluded to. Thank you, Jim. So I've been riding um, a really good friend's motorcycle and I'd been riding it for five weeks and I'd had an absolute ball on it. I'd been treating it with utmost respect and care. And I'd only done a couple of dirt roads on it, in spite of the fact that I'd seen loads that I wanted to go and have a look at. And there I am, north of San Francisco, and somebody changed, changed lane um, without looking and rode the bike off. And wow, the, the, the ultimate fear suddenly happened. And that actually has changed my attitude. And now I feel more uncomfortable about borrowing other people's bikes. And it is one of the reasons why I've bought the F800 in the United States, so that I don't have to um, borrow people's bikes. But Mr. Sheets, who is very active on Facebook and um, has an avid Adventure Rider Radio listener, um, you know, it's, it's a really good question from him because, I mean, part of it is, well, to try a different bike. Well, actually, do you know, there are one or two bikes around that I'd really like to have a go at. And other than going to a bike dealership and arranging for a test ride, if I've got a mate who's got one, then, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind going for half an hour's ride on it if he's nuts enough to let somebody with my track record have a go. Mm. Actually, we just did a, an episode a couple, a couple episodes ago on bike rentals from the, there's a couple of platforms out now that um, allow you to rent somebody's personal bike. So I could list my bike on there for rent and then Grant could get a hold of the company, say, I want to rent this guy's bike and they, they do the transaction basically. That's a good way to try a bike that you, you know, you might be interested in riding or, or checking out and have all the insurance coverage, you know, if you don't have a buddy that would let you ride it for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. yeah, we also have on the hub, there's a forum for bike swap and people in one country say, I've got a bike available and I'd like to go to some other country and what have you got? And they arrange intercontinental bike swaps. Oh, like a house Why swap not? sort of thing. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah, that's yeah, a good idea great. too. I mean, as long as everybody's good with it, because the thing is, I know with Sam's, um, the crash that Sam had there where somebody drove into them, at first, I, I believe it looked all great. You know, the person who rode into you, or drove into you said, you know, it was their fault and everything. And then they were balking at it afterwards. It was, was that, what, I mean, I don't want to get into the details, but that's sort of what happened, right? Oh, it, it turned out that um, the guy whose bike I'd um, borrowed was insured by the same insurance company as the guy who hit me. Oh. Mm. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly the right response. So all of a sudden, it, things start. Yeah, exactly. It, mm. it just all got really nasty. Um, and it was, a, it was a darn shame. But hey, from my point of view, um, my friend had his bike and all of his accessories covered eventually. So he wasn't out of pocket. He lost his bike, 
Um, and I, I will always regret that. But he's been very, very cool about it. But at least in the end, he wasn't out of pocket. Yeah. Um, but it's incredible how something that seems so so benign or, or so so drawn out is, is that somebody changes lanes into you becomes a problem and then ends up, you know, becoming a, a fiasco rather than just being a, a thing where somebody gets their money and, and pays it off. So what I'm saying is it makes that borrowing the bike thing just, as you said, just uncomfortable to say the least. And the reality is, if you're going to do it, then you have to accept that you're borrowing the bike with the agreement that if you wreck it or you damage it, you replace it. And I do come across people who borrow bikes from somebody else and they break something and walk away. And I just think, how can you do that? Yeah, I agree totally. You can't. You can't. I mean, you just can't do that. That's just not right. Absolutely. People that do that are moral problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You bend it, you mend it. Absolutely. But Brian, do you, do you borrow bikes like that? Um, no, I don't like borrowing bikes straight out for that very reason. For, for Sam's, what, what Sam went through, I I don't like doing it, I, I must admit. And uh, I do it very, very, very rarely. Um, um, yeah, I'd, I'd prefer to go and hire a bike. And take that risk, you know. I, th- I think along the same ways, and with everything, Sam, the way you said, the same thing about boring power tools, all that sort of stuff. I don't like borrowing. I'd, I'd rather um, go out and find one, and buy one used, or, or buy one new, or whatever it is that I'm after. I don't like borrowing just for that reason. I, I don't, I don't want to mess somebody else up with it. Um, and the bike thing is, you know, I've had people offer to, to loan me their bike or let me ride their bike. Even just a, a couple of weeks back, there was a, a guy, with, and I would have loved to have tried it with the, the Scrambler. It's got the desert sled. Uh, Ducati and it, man, I would love to ride this thing. And he said, well, take it for a spin. And it's like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to be the, the one that, you know, either somebody hits or, or make a mistake and do something stupid and drop this guy's brand new bike. Um, now, so for me, uh, I, I just, I'd say no. And that's yeah. it. You know, if you drop your own bike, well, it's just another souvenir of when you were a silly ass. Yeah. Um, but you drop somebody else's bike and well, it's their pride and joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's so easy to do to make your own mistake. Um, oh, I yeah. rented a Kawasaki KLR 650 once to go to our event in Mexico. And um, the guy, when I picked it up, said, oh, it's got new fenders on it, new, all new plastic. It's great. It's beautiful, ready to go. I said, why did you do that? I'm going <laughs> to take it to Copper Canyon and ride around in the dirt. And sure enough, and, and worse, um, loaded it up and headed off, got to a gas station, pulled in, parked the bike, and... I didn't realize just how soggy KLR suspension was. And I'm sitting, standing there, and I'm watching the bike, and it sinks a little bit on the suspension and then plops over. Mm. Just sunk so far on the suspension, it went to vertical and fell over. And scratched the brand-new front fender. Mm-hmm. And that can happen to you on a borrowed bike, a rented bike, whatever. It's so easy to do. You're unfamiliar. It's a little strange. It's really easy to make a mistake like that. Yeah. Or have something, you put your foot down, there's a bit of gravel there. You didn't notice yeah, a stick, yeah. you know, that rolls on your, under your foot or something like that. Yeah. Well, I was in New Zealand pulling out of a parking lot and somebody pulled in suddenly in front of me. So I hit the brakes, put my foot down, except that that was where the one large pothole in the entire place was. And I mm-hmm. couldn't reach the ground. That was it. Over we went. Shit happens. You know, I know people who have um, bikes that they keep for um, other travelers to use. And they're in good mechanical working order, but um, the plastic and everything else is just beat up to buggery and it doesn't matter. Um, yep. And they don't, really idea. don't care. 
if you drop the bike they really don't care if you put add scratches to it what's most <laughs> important to them is that you go out and you explore their country and you have a fantastic time yeah. um and if you return the bike with some added souvenirs well that just gives them another story to tell to the next person who's borrowing the bike from them and that's i think that's an awesome attitude and it's really yeah. fine and really generous yeah. Yeah, that yeah that's right. and that's, that's, that's fine. You know, I, I, I'd, I'd take a bike like that, but I certainly wouldn't take a, a good-looking new bike. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a good point, Sam. Yeah, I, I guess for somebody who does that, you know, they they're fully aware. They're going in it with their eyes wide open, and um, yeah, that, that that could work out for sure. I haven't had that opportunity. Yeah, in South Africa, I get to borrow a dealer's demo bike, which is really nice because it's brand shiny new, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> You mean it doesn't matter if anything happens to it? They're not concerned? It's fully insured. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that's one thing if you're renting a bike. You want to make sure that it's that it's covered if you drop it, yeah. not just if you have a collision. Yeah, for sure. You want to make sure that that uh, deductible is very, very low. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's too easy right. on a bike these days. I mean, somebody said that they dropped their 1600 BMW and it was almost a write-off. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah I've heard that. Yeah, $3,000 damage if you drop something on a fairing, you know. It's, yeah. oh, you've got to replace all of that. Well, I, th- I think that wraps things up. I know we've, we're going long here again. Um, let's get into our plugs. Um, Grant, you seem very awake at this point. Oh, I'm I'm fading. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crash soon. Okay, well, let's get you I'm first okay. then. Um, no. <laughs> just give me a minute. Okay. Shall we just sit in silence and, and let you feel the pressure of, of waiting? Everybody just wait. Maybe, okay. maybe we could go, then we can um, skive off and look after our guests. Surely that is a wonderful idea. Okay. Okay, so just to, to keep the tradition flowing, I don't have any plugs. <laughs> oh, sure, <laughs> But Brian wow. does... I don't have any plugs. Oh, okay. com. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that's that's sure, that's sure. No, on my my ride, we've we've been raising awareness for uh, legacies and things like that. And one of the benefits that we've found is that we're getting a lot of people who are disenfranchised with their previous occupation or a little bit upset about things, and they're coming on these rides that we do, this wall to wall ride. Um, the South Australian contingent for the wall-to-wall ride this year are having a big display of motorcycles, old motorcycles, new motorcycles, outside the Adelaide Oval. So anyone in South Australia, make your way... Now, first of all, the date should be around about the uh, 12th or 13th of September yet to be confirmed, but it'll be the middle of September and they'll have a big display in the car park area of the Adelaide Oval, which is in the heart of Adelaide, and it should be fantastic. They're organising it now and uh, I'd encourage anyone to get down there and they'll have a barbecue on and people can make a donation if they want or they can just go and have a look at the beautiful old bikes if they want. And the webpage is? Walltowallride.com. Okay. All right. Um, Sam, what have you got? Uh, can I have a couple? Would that be all right? Because my first one has to be um, a plug for Pear Schnapps. I've been so enjoying this show as I've been knocking back the Pear Schnapps. It's just excellent. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm um, not sure about the Pear Schnapps one. Um, can all I, right, then. Can, can we think about that and, until you do your yeah. other one and then we come back to that one? 
Yeah, uh, okay, just, that's just, cool. Just quickly, Sam, I do have a few bottles of pear schnapps in the cupboard, which were given to us by our German friends. Oh, no. oh we're, just yell, that's my favourite. I want, I want oh, some now. It's too it's early. Nice. No, it's not. This is excellent for breakfast. Pear schnapps, lovely. <laughs> oh, God. It starts the day off with, a, with an absolute smile. Bit of fruit. She doesn't need any encouragement, believe me. <laughs> uh, thanks, mate. Yeah, I'll let you go now. <laughs> All right. Okay, so anyway, serious um, plugs. Um, the first one is um, I'm presenting a book signing at the Adventure Bike Rider Magazine Festival um, from July the 12th to the 14th. So the show may just be out in time for that. Um, this is looking good. It's in Warwickshire in the UK. Um, and it's got a cracking list of presenters and off-road riding and all sorts of things going on. Um, the second is um, on uh, between 29th of August and September the 1st, I'm going to be presenting a book signing at the Overland event, which is just um, near Oxford in the United Kingdom. And I love this event. It's the atmosphere is absolutely super. Um, now, I, I want to do um, a plug for um, Liz Jansen and her book, Crash Landing. I picked this book up from Liz when I saw her at um, and met her for the first time at um, Horizons Unlimited Virginia earlier on in this year. And this book, it's it's an absolutely fascinating tale of, of motorcycling, searching for her family's roots from Russia um, across to Canada and how she grew up in Canada as a result of those routes. Her descriptions are absolutely superb. She has a real challenging moment and some very um, thought-provoking sections. And I think this is a book that you need to open with an open mind. And of course, that's the key element to any journey, isn't it? An open mind. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm about halfway through this book and I'm fascinated by it. And that's available on Amazon. And that's um, Crash Landing by Liz Jansen. And the last one is just to say, um, after much encouraging from people, um, I'm on Instagram now. So if anybody likes um, the sound of connecting up there, I'm concentrating on um, posting up, um, yeah, interesting photos. So, um, yeah, connect Instagram. It'd be great to see you there. Thank you. Very good. Now, um, Liz Jansen, we had her on the show here. So if you go to our website, adventureriderradio.com, and just find the search button on the right-hand side, the search little um, field, type in Liz Jansen or Crash Landing, you'll find uh, an episode we did with her. And yeah, you can uh, get an idea about Liz and the book. Great. Now, Grant, are you ready to go? Just checking, am I? Yep, yep, I'm ready. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, my plug is pretty simple. It's probably my usual one, which is Next Horizons Unlimited event. We've got Sweden coming up July 6 to 8. And our second biggest event of the year, Can West, July 11 to 14. And that's going to be a real week of riding because July 11 to 14 is the Can West Travelers Meeting. And the following weekend in the same location, same venue is the Hum Monashies. So if you want to get a real kick of riding in some wonderful, beautiful riding area, that's a great event to set your, set your sights on. Uh, we've got Bulgaria coming up, Mongolia, Montenegro, Switzerland, Romania, Latvia, Italy, France, UK again, California, Bolivia, Germany, South Africa, Ecuador. Wow. I think we've got a big schedule this year. Lots Mm. going on, lots of events everywhere. There's always an event somewhere near you. So check out the horizonsunlimited.com slash events, and we hope to see you at one of them. Well, and that's, uh, you said Hamanashis coming up after Can West. Can West is July 11th to 14th, and Hamanashis was what? The following weekend. Following weekend. Okay. 
Well, that's great. I mean, I think we, we've uh, we've done it, and it's time to wrap it up. Aww. I know, I know. And we all stayed awake, everybody. I mean, Grant, I'm, I'm very impressed. You seem to wake up more and more as we went along, so I guess you can hit the sack after this. I think I'm going to. I'm going to have a nap for sure. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Bye. Nice one. Bye, everybody. See you all. really pleased to have the support of Fresh Tracks. That's freshtracks.co.uk, facilitating adventurous conversations, much like I hope we do here on Raw. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and my co-host, starting with Sam Manicom, who lives in the UK. He's a world traveler, writer, and author of Overland Books. You can find out more about Sam at sam-manicom.com. Grant Johnson, also a world traveler, lifelong motorcyclist. He's one of the founders of Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for motorcycle overlanders. Drop by and see what they've got going on, including all the events that they put on around the world. Horizonsunlimited.com. Brian Ricks and Shirley Hardy Ricks from Australia, both world travelers, authors of some great books from their adventures. Find out more about them and their escapades at aussiesoverland.com. Graham Field, another world traveler and author of some great motorcycle adventure books. You can find out more about Graham. He, he, by the way, he lives in Bulgaria. He is from the UK. His website is gramfield.co.uk. My name is Jim Martin. I am the host here at Adventure Rider Radio Raw and Adventure Rider Radio. If you don't know about our other show, Adventure Rider Radio, that's sort of our main show, a weekly one. Um, just do a search for it or drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you next month.